Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Mike Douglas coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. Sorry about the creaking and groaning. <laughs> I was just adjusting to see my chair. I should uh, mute myself next time. Uh, so we're waiting for Brianna. She might be a few minutes late this morning, so we have a little uh, little time to, to go over some stuff. Uh, just an amazing amount of things is happening in the news. Where's my list here? I've got a, uh, a whole bunch of stuff that uh, we're going to chat about as the day goes on. The big thing uh, today uh, is we're going to talk airplanes. And this is something near and dear to my heart. Uh, ever since I went on my first uh, airliner uh, at five years old, on a Vickers Viscount, which doesn't exist anymore, but this was a turboprop. Uh, and then I flew on, flew on the much bigger Vickers Vanguard. <laughs> Eventually ended up on a 707 on my way to Europe. And so that was, uh, that was quite an experience, too. So I've always loved flying and tried to be in the airlines, tried to be in the Air Force, tried a bunch of things. And uh, for one reason or another, you know, eyesight kind of took me out of the Air Force. Uh, the all airlines went broke, kind of stopped my airline career, and just a bunch of other things went wrong. <laughs> so I never actually made it there. But this has been uh, radio, so my, my, uh, my second uh, great passion, and so I love doing radio. But I also want to start flying again. Now, something really exciting is happening in the world of aviation. Uh, it's called the Mosaic Rule, and I forgot what it stands for. But this is the FAA doing something right. I mean, really right. <laughs> They're going to open up the, the light sport category. They're going to make it easier to get uh, uh, visual flying licenses. Uh, or certificates if you want to get technical. And it's just going to, the whole aviation world's about to explode. And it's going to happen sometime next year. And I can't wait because there's some really cool airplanes. They're light, they're carbon fiber, they're, they're powered by these Rotax engines that use car gas instead of AVE gas. So, you know, basically motor vehicle fuel as opposed to uh, uh, aviation fuel. And aviation fuel is more expensive. A lot, more, a lot more expensive than uh, than car gas and diesel, and so whereas car gas might be three dollars a gallon, diesel four dollars a gallon, uh, aviation fuel is about six dollars a gallon, and as you can probably guess, uh, you know aviation engines burn up a lot of fuel because they go fast, and car engines are running usually what thirty forty percent of their power if that, airplane engines are running at full power <laughs> for takeoff, and you know anywhere from fifty five to seventy five percent power in cruise. And so they're using most of their power. So they're, they're, you know, they wear out faster, they, uh, but they get a lot more performance. Well, you have to. If you want to go fast, that's how you do it. And so this is what makes it so exciting um, to go flying. It's when you go flying fast and we love flying fast. But the FAA was restricting everybody. Uh, they were restricting everybody to these slow uh, airplanes if you wanted to be a light sport pilot, if you didn't have the money for a private pilot uh, certificate. And so the, the whole idea of, of the light sport category uh, and the sport pilot license was to get more people flying. It was easier to get than a private, but it was visual, you know, and I don't think you could fly at night. And they had, uh, they have some other restrictions. I've been out of it for a while. So, I, you know, my, my, my restrictions are probably a little different, but uh, uh, they're going to change the airplanes and hopefully they'll, they'll change the pilot certificates to go along with them. So if you have a sport pilot certificate, you'll be able to fly a much uh, faster, more capable airplane. Uh, it won't be bigger or heavier. It's just going to be a lot more efficient because the carbon fibers, the, the weight of the new airplanes is half what the older ones are. So whereas most people are flying in these, these uh, you know, uh, um, well, the standard plane has four seat, four seat single engine fixed gear. So that would be, you know, epitomized by the Cessna 172 and the Piper Cherokee. And so those two airplanes are, are probably the most, you know, common planes out. The Cessna is the high wing, uh, the Cherokee, the Piper has the low wing. 
and they're a single engine, about 150 horsepower, 160, 180, somewhere in there. Uh, they have four places, four seats, uh, but you, it's, it's hard. You know, you got to balance your load. If you've got four people, you know, in there and some bags, you're not going to take full fuel. You're probably going to be half fuel. Uh, if you've got full fuel, you probably only have two people and maybe some very light, you know, stuff. So you got to balance a little. So they're not that capable, but they're heavy, you know, for their power. And they only go about 100, 120 knots. Not very fast. Whereas these new airplanes <laughs> are carbon fiber. They weigh half as much. Uh, they have that same 150, 160, 80 horsepower engine, but it's it's a Rotax. It's an entirely new kind of engine. Uh, it, it sounds like a, like a drone. <laughs> it sounds like a big drone engine. But you know, you're, you're going twice as fast. So, uh, so instead of 100 knots, you're doing 200 knots. And it's just, it's a much different, well, that cuts your time down. Well, that cuts your expense down too, because if you're burning the same amount or, or less fuel, you know, per hour, and that's how they measure fuel is per hour, um, then um, the cost less. Because so airplanes, you know, and they're going to be in the flying schools, they're going to be all over the place. I think it's going to be really exciting. It's going to be really, really exciting uh, to, to see what's going to happen with aviation. We'll talk more about that. Things in the news, uh, the F-35 is still missing. <laughs> well, I've never seen a picture of it. You know, we, we say there was wreckage, but, you know, they forgot it, right? So where did the F-35 go? And do we know it's really an F-35? Um, I've got to, if you hear some noise in the background, and I may have to, I'll, I'll see if Marco can, well, Marco's not here yet. But um, I'll get a reading from you guys. Uh, my neighbor's doing some construction, yard work, something, whatever it is, is a machine over there. Uh, and so if you hear that, then... Uh, and then uh, let me, you know, let me know and I'll, I'll have to go and close the window. So otherwise I'll take the fresh air. Thank you. Anyway, so what's going on? So that um, the report yesterday from Jessica Rivera on both uh, Obama's uh, mysterious chef death by drowning. But apparently Clinton had lost a chef through drowning also. <laughs> so now I'm interested. Right? That gets really is really kind of curious. Um, let's talk about my Congress uh, person, Matt Gates. Matt Gates is all over the news. Matt Gates wants to remove uh, Kevin McDeep state. And uh, apparently the GOP is turning on him for that. So, so the, the GOP, the geldings, the establishment, the deep state, uh, all the people there that want to keep the system as it is of wealth and privilege and, uh, you know, complete abuse of, of uh, the American people uh, and the fact that they're maintaining an illegal government in Brandon, they'd rather maintain an illegal government, uh, put us on a course of economic suicide and do all kinds of things rather than honor their commitment to make uh, Kevin McDeep state actually stand up to the uh, uh, the things he agreed to to become speaker in the first place, but I, I always knew it was a mistake. I you know we predicted this. We we said, look, he's not going to change. He'll promise anything to become speaker, anything. But he's not going to do it. You know he's already uh, been a, a, a traitor to his own uh, you know speakership. Uh, he's made the you know budget deals with Brandon, which he can't do. The speaker of the house does not go to the president and negotiate separate deals. That's not how the government works. So that's illegal. Um, now we've got Gavin Newsom supporting a a, a black woman, lesbian, something, fundraiser, you know, head of uh, Emily's List uh, to the Senate, which he can't do because she's from Maryland. So let's see if any of the senators, any of the geldings will object to that. Probably not, because they're part of the deep state, too. So we, we don't have a Congress. We have a bunch of people that serve the deep state. And so most of them need to retire, go, be, be unelected, and kind of move from there. But let's get back to Matt Gates. So Matt Gates used to be on the show quite regularly, in fact. Uh, every week, you know, up until uh, I was uh, fired from WBY and then back. Uh, well, I, we're gonna, <laughs> I might as well announce this now. We're going to do a little bit of a, a special show on uh, Friday the 13th of this month, which is not this Friday, but next Friday. Uh, I'm going to play my final hour 
on WEBY because I had a rather special guest <laughs> right before, uh, 15 minutes before things ended. And, uh, <laughs> you're going to laugh when you hear who it is. Anyway, it, it's kind of funny, but uh, that'll, be, uh, that'll be something I'll play for you uh, at that time. So anyway, so, so Matt, I'm going to try and encourage to come back on the show, uh, get him back to what he used to do, which was ideas. You know, when he was with uh, uh, on our show every week, we had plenty of ideas. And he took those to Congress and he talked to other people around the country and worked with the House Freedom Caucus. And at that point, he was a really good representative. Uh, now I think he's kind of been seduced by the dark side of celebrity status and media fame. And I think it can happen to anybody. You know, and I think it does happen. Uh, the, the Jacob Chaffetz syndrome where he was in Congress and then he went to Fox News. You know, he thought it'd be, be big, bigger and better to be on Fox News than to be in Congress. Uh, Devin Nunez made the same mistake when he left uh, as head of the Intelligence uh, Committee um, to go work on True Social. Big mistake. I said at the time, don't do it. You're going to regret leaving Congress. You're going to regret, you know, losing subpoena power and being able to investigate all these things, especially when we have an illegal government. And I, I don't know if he still regrets it. We'll find out if he, if he runs again uh, for to get his House seat back. But uh, he won't be chair because he'll be a he'll be a new person again. Well, maybe he'll get appointed to it. I don't know. But I still think it was a mistake, uh, especially in these times. For Devin Nunez, one of the most capable people uh, in the country in terms of intelligence and uh, intelligence gathering. Well, intelligence too. But uh, the fact that he knew how to run the Intelligence Committee and find out all the, the nasty stuff the CIA and uh, FBI, all the other folks were doing. So that should be um, interesting. Uh, more stuff to talk about. The, the CR, the continuing resolution, was a total failure. Um, the, the, the successful plan would have been to have the government shut down. But they shouldn't really say that because the government doesn't shut down. It shuts a little bit. You know, they lay off the unnecessary people. Well, they should stay off permanently because if they're unnecessary, why are we paying for them? Uh, they do a bunch of other things. Um, there's Pianchi. Pianchi's on, uh, on live chat. Yeah, um, Brianna looks like she's going to be a little bit late this morning. So, Pianchi, if you want to call in real quick, feel free. Uh, and then I'll get to her when she comes on. But, um, yeah, you don't, if you're listening to the podcast, you don't see that. But the live chat is a function that happens when the show is live. And so anybody can get an account. Uh, it's free. And then you can start uh, typing. We've had some interesting live chat wars. <laughs> That's been pretty wild, too. Pianchi, you're going to like my guest in the third Gene Valentino, he's a friend of mine, uh, and we're going to talk aviation, the FAA mosaic rule. We're going to talk pilot stuff. So we did pilot stuff recently with somebody else. Uh, I forgot who it was, um, but um, Pianchi and I were talking. Talking. I want to get back flying. I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. As soon as the show gets more successful uh, and we have uh, you know, some major national impacts and national sponsors and things like that, uh, I'm going flying. <laughs> so, you know, it, that, that's, good. that's a given. All right, so... What else have I got for news here? Yeah, I just kind of poked through my stuff here. Yeah, I wasn't anticipating Brianna not being here, so that was kind of a surprise. But uh, we'll see. All right. So a couple of things. One of the things I wrote on Facebook um, yesterday was Representative Jamal Bowman just yelled fire in a crowded theater, crowded house theater, by pulling a fire alarm, fire alarm during the CR, the continuing resolution vote. And then I wrote expulsion. So this is somebody that does not need to be in Congress. If you're going to commit a, the, the felony of falsely pulling a fire alarm, in other words, you're basically yelling fire in a crowded theater, as they say, um, then uh, you don't need to be in Congress. And on all the excuses and all the weenie stuff, you got people in, in the D.C. gulag. Isn't it interesting how many people are calling it the D.C. gulag? Well, we did it first. Or the fact that the, the J6 people are political prisoners? Yeah, I think we did that first, too. Um, you know, shortly after they got there, uh, I had George Papadopoulos on the show. And I said, uh, what do you think of the, the people in, the, in the, the, the D.C. prison as political prisoners? And he said, no. I'm like, why not? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I could probably pull that, uh, pull that tape. And I said, yeah, they're in kind of like a gulag, don't you think? And so now everybody's calling it the D.C. gulag and political prisoners. So uh, it's nice to see we set the trends. 
And so that's kind of cool. All right. Um, let me see what I can do right now. I've got, let me pull up something here. Something I was thinking of, uh, here we go. Let's do this. And uh, it's about a five minute article. It says, but you know, with me conversing, it could be 10 or more minutes. Let's get into this. One of the things I was looking at was, was ancient Rome and how they handled uh, the, the barbarians at the gate. <laughs> and I thought to myself, there's got to be some parallels with our own illegal immigration system um, because we're basically bringing in illegals, calling them immigrants. Uh, the same thing's happening to Western Europe. They, they are Islamicizing <laughs> or Muslimicizing Europe. And, uh, you know, a thousand years ago, they fought the crusade, so that wouldn't happen, which is kind of interesting. Those are pretty bad. You don't go to somebody else's country and kill a bunch of people in the name of, uh, of God. That's just wrong. <laughs> okay. Anyway, but if, you, if, they, if a bunch of people are invading your country, that's a whole different story. Anyway, so uh, I found this article on U.S. Dornsife, D-O-R-N-S-I-F-E. I have no idea what that means. USC, I don't think that's the University of Southern California. It doesn't sound like them. Uh, let me see if I can find uh, more details on this. And anyway, it's news and events. I just found this article. It's kind of interesting. And it says, Immigration, How Ancient Rome Dealt with Barbarians at the Gate. It says, A tragic moment in Roman history could be used to inform America's own immigration policies, says a USC Dornsife professor. I guess that's the University of Southern California. It can't be. Anyway, the, uh, the, the author of this is Caven W. Concanon. That's C-A-V-A-N or Cavan. That, that sounds like a white name. Oh, Kevin. Well, why, yes, uh, Broderick. <laughs> How are you, Beauregard? <laughs> you know, doing fine, uh, Wellington. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, this just sounds like a white name. Kevin W. Con Cannon. Oh, geez. That's uh, uh, who is it? There's a couple of other names. Um, yeah, I was, uh, we had Chadwick Moore, the author of Tucker, on. And I was saying to myself, you know, that, that's a, you know, Chadwick and Tucker. This, those are really white names, too. <laughs> anyway. Um, Marco's on the line in, uh, or on the live chat in the Netherlands. So, Marco, welcome. And I, I, I keep forgetting to, you know, when he, he signs off, because he signs off, because the live chat ends when the show ends, and we usually go a little bit longer. So, uh, so for all future times, Marco, thanks for participating. And uh, when the show ends and we keep going, just have a great day. <laughs> I'll just say that like I make that permanent thing. All right. So let's get back to, uh, let's get back to the barbarians. So he says, a caravan of Goths, G-O-T-H-S, not the people that dress in black and do black nail polish. We're talking about real Goths, all right? This is ancient Rome. A caravan of Goths, the Thurvingi and the Gruthungi, <laughs> this is already funny, right? We're massing along the, the Danube River at the border of the Roman Empire. This is not an invading army, but men, women, and children fleeing at the enemy at their backs, a seemingly invincible army of Huns. So you got Huns to the north. You've got Romans to the south. You've got the Danube River, and you've got the Thervingi and the Gurgrifungi, you know, trying to enter Rome. Sounds to me like our southern border with caravans of trainloads of people, except those people don't have Huns at their back. In fact, all they have is a, you know, a corrupt country, but that's their problem. Anyway, it says this was not an invading army, but men, women, and children fleeing uh, the seemingly invincible army of Huns. Now, the Goths, a coalition of Germanic uh, tribes that were long foes of the Romans begged to be admitted to the Roman territory. Afraid for their lives, they hoped to find safety on the other side of the river. Hmm, can you say Rio Grande? <laughs> the year was 376. What the Romans did in response to the arrival of the Goths would have profound effects on the history of the vast and powerful Roman Empire. As the United States grapples with a polarizing debate over how to manage and police its southern border, a debate that led to the longest government shutdown in history, what was that? Anyways, as American policymakers would do well to understand what happened during this tragic moment in Roman history. Uh, this is from February 13th, 2019. So this is Trump administration. 
Okay, so this is right in the middle of uh, of the good times. 2017, 20, well, actually 2018 when Trump took office, 2018 and 2019, those were the good years. 2020, of course, we had uh, uh, the deep state introduced COVID to the world, and um, we know what happened after that. But 2017, 2018, 2018, 2019, those are the good years. So Trump had two really good years, and yet he's still talking about, this article still talking about barbarians at the gate. I find that interesting. Anyway, so it says, uh, as the United States grapples with the polarizing over how to manage and police the southern border, well, kind of simple. You manage and police the southern border, right? He says uh, a debate, Caven says, well, it could be a female. Don't think so. A debate that led to the longest government shutdown in history. American policymakers, oh, I read that. Okay. Roman border security was historically effective, not because of massive barriers. In other words, the wall, right? My addition, but because they knew how to manage the flow of migration. This is interesting. Now, there's a difference between migration and immigration. Immigrants are people that lawfully apply or that apply to come into the country lawfully. They get permanent resident status with the intention of becoming citizens. That's what an immigrant is. A migrant is someone that comes here, does some work, makes money, and goes home. They do not have plans to become citizens. They do not have plans to live in the United States. That's what a migrant is. Anything else you hear is BS and propaganda. Article says this flow didn't lead to the collapse of the empire by marauding Germans. Rather, the flow of migration transformed the Roman Empire into what became medieval society. And this is what I'm going to draw on Pianchi at some point to uh, uh, explain this in more detail because this is more his area um, than mine. Article says, yet the arrival of the Goths in 376 shows what happens when good border policy is ignored. Here we go. Ancient Roman border security. To understand how the arrival of the Gothic tribes created a crisis for the late Roman Empire, we have to first start with how the Romans traditionally handled the migration of new tribes into their territory. The borders of the Roman Empire were constantly in flux and always flexibly managed, owing to the difficulties of policing a huge border without modern technology, which is interesting that we have a not that big a border compared to you know, China and Russia, and we do have modern technology. <laughs> anyway, article says Roman border control rarely made use of massive walls, but depended on natural barriers in the landscape. Well, we got some of those too. This was particularly true on the northern border, which heavily relied on the Rhine and Danube rivers. Rome's borders were gradual transitions more than hard and fast lines. That's interesting. When migrating tribes asked to be admitted to the empire, the Romans tended to follow a fairly standard policy. Tribes were broken up into smaller groups and sent to underpopulated regions. They were forced to surrender their weapons. Well, that's interesting renounce their loyalty to their tribal leaders, whoop, don't have that, <laughs> and commit a certain number of fighting men to the Roman legions. Hmm, certainly don't have that, and I wouldn't want them anyway. It says these policies had served the empire well for centuries. By diluting tribal loyalty and disarming the newcomers, what we call today, you know, assimilation, <laughs> that's on the article, I'm just putting that in. If people come to the United States, the idea is that you assimilate. You can keep your culture, food, language, all that kind of stuff, but you, you become an American with an American culture, and we definitely have an American culture. You know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that's American culture, all right? You know, live and let live, uh, be independent, uh, you know, keep your own property, that's American culture. All right. Anyway, it says, uh, by the, all right, there we go, Guess, and then it says Goths at the border. So here we go. Let's return to the Goths waiting on the north side of the Danube. One of our main historical sources about this event is the 4th century Roman historian, Amanius Marcellinus. Yeah, don't know who that is, whose account is used in this description. According to Amanius, one of the Gothic tribes, the Thervingi, <laughs> I just love these names, I'm sorry, sent envoys to the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, Valen, oh, Eastern Roman Emperor, Valen, I can move my screen over a little bit here. It's, okay, let me start again. According to Amanius, 
use of one of the Gothic tribes, the Thervingi, sent envoys to the Eastern Roman Emperor Valens to ask for admission to the empire. They wanted their people to, to settle in nearby Thrace. You guys remember that from the movie Spartacus? He was Thracian, okay? Anyways, he settled in nearby Thrace, adding the promise that they would contribute soldiers to the Roman army. This offer pleased the emperor and the local population. The Thervingi a strong buffer against other potentially unfriendly travel groups and would provide soldiers and new tax revenue. Well, that's one of the main reasons for all these uh, illegals. Uh, this, you know, the government thinks they're going to get taxes, and that pleases the Democrats, and uh, companies think they're going to get cheap labor, and that pleases the Republicans, and so they're both in it together. Anyway, back to the article. Valens welcomed them to cross over. That fall, huge numbers of Thervingi crossed the river, which was swollen from recent rains. Uh-huh. They must have climate change. They, they made the journey in whatever boats they could, could be found. Hmm, Mario Boatlift. Anyway, it says, at this point, things went badly for the Thervingi. Many died during the dangerous crossing. The Romans allowed more Thervingi to cross than they could supply with food. That sounds like us. The local Roman military commanders, Lupinicius and Maximus. Wait a minute, Maximus? <laughs> there really was a Maximus? Okay, I've got to look more into this. All right. Lupus, well, actually, it makes sense because if you remember the opening scene, in uh, Gladiator, you know, Lucilius Marcus Aurelius Maximus, whatever his name was, right? You know, he talked about that first war was with the Germanic tribe. Those were Germans. So maybe there is some historical basis, uh, maybe a lot more than I thought originally about the movie Gladiator. Of course, now I have to look into it. So Lupinius and Maximus withheld supplies the emperor had earmarked for the Thervingi and sold them at massively inflated prices. <laughs> I don't remember that in the movie. <laughs> Amanius says the situation became so desperate that, well, that sounds like what a corrupt warlord would do. I mean, this is happening all the time. This is what the, the so let's replace, replace Lupinius, Lupicinus, Lupin, Lupicinus? That doesn't sound right. L-U-P-I-C-I-N-U-S. Lupicinus. Lupicinus and Maximus, let's replace them with uh, Mexican cartels. So Mexican tar- cartels take all the money, uh, sell stuff, uh, sell border crossings at massively inflated prices, uh, and uh, put fentanyl to be brought in as well. So the, the parallels are actually rather striking. All right. Amanius says the situation became so desperate that even the families of the Thervingi chieftains sold their sons into slavery for dog meat. How many of uh, young uh, military-aged men are coming across the border? Just a thought. Back to the article. The Romans saw these migrants from the north as uncivilized and irrational. Yeah, I think we look upon uh, all the folks coming in pretty much the same way because they're not the best of their country. They're the worst. <laughs> That's the problem, right? But they don't, Democrats don't care. They just want people. They just want bodies. Bodies in the United States. More bodies, you know, uh, more bodies than aren't Americans, then uh, they water down those of us who believe in freedom, you know, the republic, <laughs> individual rights, you know, God, country, all that kind of stuff. All right. The Romans saw these migrants from the north as uncivilized and irrational. It is unlikely that the Roman commanders felt justified in their bad behavior towards the Goths because the Roman prejudice against barbarians. Oh, it is likely, oh, I must say that again. It is likely that the Roman commanders felt justified. Oh, there we go. That makes more sense. It is likely that the Roman, reading is not my specialty. <laughs> it is likely that the Roman commanders felt justified in their bad behavior toward the Goths because of Roman prejudice against barbarians. Well, I think we all have a prejudice against barbarians. I have a prejudice against illegal aliens uh, because they're illegal. I don't want them here. Um, I don't, well, maybe that's not prejudice. Maybe that's just upholding the law. We'll find out. We'll talk about that uh, as the hour goes on. Anyway, bad treatment, bad outcome. Next headline, subheadline. The Romans ignored all their usual protocols for admitting new tribes into the empire. That sounds like our open border, right? 
Article says, for some reason, the newly arrived Thurvingi were not forced to hand over their weapons, nor was the tribe broken up into smaller units. Okay, this is the intro paragraph. Into smaller units to be dispersed to different regions. This may have been because the Romans allowed too many Thurvingi to cross, leaving Roman military forces vastly outnumbered. Well, it sounds like a border patrol. Article says, the other Gothic tribe massed at the Danube, the Grithungi. <laughs> okay, sounds like the Tutsis, Hutus and the Tutsis. But anyway, the Grithungi were in a different position. Valens had, re- that's the emperor, Emperor Valens had rejected their envoy's request for admission to the empire. Well, that's kind of like discriminatory. So he let in the uh, Thurvingi, but not the Girthungi. Okay, you got, we got a Girthungi, we got a Thurvingi problem here. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having too much fun. Article says they were as desperate to cross into the Roman territory as the, the <laughs> now I can't do it, Thurvingi. I'm gonna, I can't believe this is going to be podcast, right? So, so the, the, the Girthungi were as de- desperate to cross as the Thurvingi. <laughs> Why did I do this this morning? Anyway, it's a seeing that seeing that the Romans were overwhelmed. The <laughs> can't do this. I gotta have a tough time getting through this today. The Girthungi crossed the Danube on their own, further to the east. Oh, so, so oh, that sounds about right. Yeah, it's our border. People are just crossing with the field, like right. Then it says, as conditions of <laughs> among the, thir- I'll get through this. I promise. I will. I can do my best. As conditions among the Thurvingi continue to de- continue to deteriorate. I'm going to make the screen a little brighter here. Lupicanus <laughs> made a desperate play to keep them in line. He invited their leaders, Alavius, Alavivus, A-L-A-V-I-V-U-S, Alavivus and Fritigern <laughs> to a dinner party and promptly took them hostage. Hmm, that sounds Roman. When the Thervingi began to riot in response, well, it sounds like Black Lives Matter, Fritigern was able to convince Lupicanus to let him go to calm the situation down. Yeah, right. But having gained his freedom, Fritigern reneged on his promise to Lupinus, Lupicinus, yeah, that's Black Lives Matter and Antifa, and mobilized the Thervingi, again, uh, who then allied themselves with the Grithungi. Yeah, <laughs> pretty soon the Muslim Brotherhood is going to be here too, right? So, it's a, so it, when ISIS combines with Black Lives Matter and combines with uh, Antifa, then we've got a real problem, because we have a real problem now. But anyway, the parallels, again, it's, this is like history repeating itself, right? And it's the result was a unified and massive Gothic army that was now loose and armed in Roman territory. And that's exactly what we're going to have here. We're going to have a massive and unified army of invaders right in our country. So who's to say these illegals aren't all going to get together and form their own uh, militia, their own army? Not a militia. Militia is a good thing for American citizens. But this could, we could have an army of illegal aliens. Huh. Okay, so Piaki's got some things... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. So Bianchi had a comment here just to silent a bit. He needs to be indicted, but his skin is black and he has privilege. Yeah, that would be Jamal Bowman who pulled the fire on. Well, he's also a Democrat. So if you're a Republican, Trump supporter, and you are somewhere near the Capitol, you, go, you get arrested for insurrection. If you're Jamal Bowman and you're black and you're a Democrat and you pull a fire alarm, which is a felony when there isn't a fire, right? Um, that's OK, because, you know, he's black and a Democrat. So that's basically that's his past. Um, but if he ever becomes conservative, he'll then become a white supremacist, which is really funny that that's going around, too. Pianchi, you've got to watch uh, One American News. You get the repeat with Dan Ball. Uh, I saw it this morning. It's usually on the thing. It was hysterical. It was a black guy from uh, uh, Turning Point USA is being called a white supremacist. He says, I've been black my whole life. I said, I'm from the hood. 
<laughs> you know, he says, and now I'm Turning Point USA. I said, I don't know how to be a white guy. <laughs> and then he, he says, being a white guy is really tough. This is blo-, you know, and, and Dan Ball, who's white, is just cracking up. He says, you're going to get me in trouble here. They're both laughing their asses off. It was hysterical. Anyway, see if you can get that recording. All right. Back to border policy gone wrong. Uh, here we go. So this is Roman Emperor Valens died fighting the Goths at Adrianople. Uh, here we go. So there's a coin uh, that. Uh, oh, so so Emperor Valens died. Yeah. See, you made a mistake. You let in the the barbarians, and look what happens. Maybe we should just start calling our illegals barbarians. There might be something to that. Yeah, they're not they're not illegals. They're barbarians. All right. Article says, thus began six years of war that would devastate the region and leave countless dead, including Emperor Valens, who died fighting the Goths at the Battle of Adrianople. Sounds Greek, actually, uh, in 378. The eventual peace brokered with the Goths. This is only 300 years after Jesus Christ. This is why it's interesting this happened so fast. An empire after Jesus really did not last very long, considering the hundreds of years it lasted before Jesus. This is interesting. The eventual peace brokered with the Goths in 382, not that long after the battle of 378, so that would be four years, uh, by Theodosius I allowed them to settle in Roman territory as a self-governed federation between the Danube and Balkan mountains. Oh, yeah, that'd be like setting up a separate barbarian nation within the United States, much like Colony, Colony Ridge, Texas which is already a barbarian city. I'm going to start calling them barbarians. I kind of like that. It's got, a, got a, a, an accurate ring to it. Anyway, it says, but as an independent state within Roman territory, the Goths never integrated into Roman society and remained a source of political instability. Can you say little Mogadishu in Minnesota, where the Somalis have formed an entire community uh, that's a no-go zone for, for regular American you know, constitutional authority, like the police, like all the government infrastructure, so one of the worst. So we're making all the mistakes Rome made. I mean, I knew that, but I, I, it's it's interesting to see it in print. So all the things that Rome did wrong that caused their destruction, we are doing wrong. We're bringing in entire uh, communities of barbarians to create barbarian enclaves, totally separate from American society and American ideology, which is you know freedom, the republic, individual rights, you know God, country, family, that kind of stuff. It says the failure of the Roman border policy. Oh, here we go. Uh, but as an independent state, okay, I read that. So they remained a source of political instability. The failure of Roman border policy in the period leading up to the Battle of Adrianople is a reminder that the forces that drive human migration cannot be stopped with military force or a border wall. I disagree. But that's what this person is saying, probably because they're from, if the USC means University of Southern California. They said, the failure of the Roman border policy in the period leading up to the Battle of Adrianople is a reminder that the forces that drive human migration cannot be stopped with military force or a border wall. Well, they may not be, they can certainly be slowed down, <laughs> you know, and there are policies within a country you can use to remove the barbarians. You cut off the welfare system. Uh, there's a bunch of other things that you do uh, that will remove the barbarians. I'm going to hold up here. It looks like Gabriana's on the line. So let me just do a quick check here. I've memorized everybody's phone number yet. One would think I should at this point. Yeah. Okay. So let's get on to government inquiry and I'll get back to the barbarians of the gate. That was a great article. And they said five minutes. What I take 15 already. It just, it takes me a little bit longer to go through an article just because I love to make the comments. All right. Here's Brianna. She started as a guest on action radio, courtesy of our constitution reporter, Amber Kemper. Both Brianna and Amber are graduates of Patriot Academy, 
a place where young folks get to practice writing and advocating legislation and being legislators in a mock session. Brianna immediately impressed all of us as someone we wanted on the show with her own report. With an insightful mind, asking and taking on complex questions, and a growing skill in sarcasm and satire, plus her study of government, history, the Constitution, and our founding, all of her skills and knowledge combine into something pretty incredible here on Action Radio. And now, the Government Inquiry Report with Brianna Cannon. Yeah, I've just been vamping for a while while you've been gone, talking about barbarians at the gate and the, the parallels between uh, the Roman Empire and the Goths you know, letting barbarians in and our own particular border policy. So I've decided I'm not going to use the word illegal aliens anymore. I'm just going to call them barbarians. How you doing? Good. I heard that um, there was some kind of rapport with, well, was it Poland and Hungary maybe? That were the only countries that were, you know, strong on their um, immigration policies. Yep. Yep, I saw a report on Europe. Uh, I, I'm watching interviews. Uh, I think Tucker Carlson had an interview with the, the Hungarian uh, president, and I just saw a clip of the Polish uh, president at the UN. And he's like, we don't need immigrants. We don't need Muslims in our country. We don't need to destroy our culture. We've, we've got doctors. We've got lawyers. We don't even need you know, immigrants at this point. We're doing fine. Thank you very much. So keep, you know, keep your barbarians out. And it was fabulous. You know, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's nationalism the way it's supposed to be. That's people putting their own country first, as, as, as Trump says. And so, yeah, those are, those are two great case studies of how to manage your country. Now, do you find it interesting that both of those countries are, are Eastern Europe as opposed to Western Socialist Europe? These are former communist countries. Um, what do you think? I think that might be a factor in it that... They kind of have more of an idea of the dangers, maybe. I don't know. Well, I was just, I found it curious. You know, I'm, I'm always looking for patterns and trends. So why would the Eastern European countries, they're talking about former communist countries that were invaded by Russia in the 50s, uh, that were taken over. These are countries that were overrun by the Nazis in World War II in the 40s. And so they've got a history of being conquered. And so I'm wondering if because of that history of two you know, communists or well, Nazis are, are ultra leftists and communists are ultra leftists. There's not a whole lot of difference uh, except, you know, shades of degree. So why would Eastern Europe, which was uh, totally dominated and millions of people were killed from both Nazis and communists, why, you know, why would they want to have yet another, you know, migrant invasion or, or illegal aliens or barbarians at the gate? Why would they want barbarians in their country? Uh, to to risk you know another invasion and that's what it seems to me this is why I think they're they're you know probably more sensitive and more bold in their action because no one else is going to help them and they don't have yeah. Western guilt they don't have Western guilt they don't have uh, you know white socialist liberal guilt and oh no we have to take care of the world we have to pay for the world and we have to do all this other kind of nonsense that Western Europe has as they have gone socialist not realizing you know that uh, the the problems that the folks you know in Eastern Europe already know too well. And I went to East Germany. I saw it. So what, what their communism looks like. It's scary. Anyway, what do you think? Yeah, if, if I was to, you know, kind of guess, I'd say in short, they're kind of sick of it. You know, countries, some, some of the countries have been, you know, through a lot in their history and even more recent history. And so some of them aren't going to be as lenient. Some of them are going to be more forceful. And some of them are going to do what they can not to let um, – any more trouble come into their country. They're not going to take all these unnecessary risks that will mm-hmm. potentially destroy their country after they've had a lot of turmoil. 
And it's interesting, just to the east of those countries, of Poland and Hungary, uh, is Ukraine and Belarus. Belarus, which is much closer to Russia. Uh, we actually have listeners in Belarus. Uh, we used to have Poland. I guess uh, they, they got uh, they moved on to other things. But I think Hungary uh, and Romania still have a fair amount of listeners. Um, so it's really interesting that uh, Eastern Europe especially, you know, catches on to this show. There used to be more. Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia, Bosnia Herzegovina, a bunch of different places um, where we're listening in Eastern Europe. But uh, yeah, maybe, they're, maybe they're censoring us in Europe too. Oh, here we go. So Marco in the Netherlands says, bring in a lot of strangers to disrupt the unity in the normal population. Yeah. And it's interesting the use of the word normal because, you know, people are afraid of what's normal. You know, uh, heterosexuals are normal. Uh, people who believe in God in this country are normal. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's very Americans, you know, American culture is normal for this country. So we've sort of gotten away from the use of the word normal. But you can't bring in barbarians uh, who don't assimilate. And I talked about that in the previous article um, and expect to, to keep your country. What do you think? Yeah, probably. I mean, um, taking a different route, like looking at America, um, going off to this, we've been prosperous for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I heard, um, I don't know, it was probably about a year ago or something. So this is a really big stretch of what it may have been. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was saying that we're getting too comfortable that we're creating problems. No, comfortable is not. That sounds actually pretty uh, accurate. Uh, it's not that we're getting too comfortable. We're getting complacent. There's a difference. There's nothing wrong with being comfortable uh, as long as yeah. you keep your guard, keep your values. And so let me do a little quick thing. First of all, do you have to go at the top of the hour? Because Josie's not here this week. So if you want to stay longer, you can. Do you have extra time? I don't want to shortchange any topics you have. Or can we kind of ramble for a bit? Um, I can't stay like a full second hour, but yeah, I can stay a little past. Okay, good. All right. So let's do that. So it's an interesting question. And I was thinking as you were talking that uh, during World War II, of course, nobody was comfortable. We were at war and there were rations, you know, there were gasoline rations, metal. You couldn't use metal for things that, you know, you couldn't buy a lot of stuff. Everything, food was rationed. Uh, income, uh, wages were all, were all fixed and everything was completely controlled. Um, but that was wartime. Then once the war was over, we were the only country with factories. You know, we had our industry still intact. In fact, it was overproducing, you know, incredible amounts of military stuff, you know, tanks, planes, you know, ships, things like that. And so when we switched to a consumer economy, the rest of the world's factories were bombed out. So we had the only game in town. We couldn't lose, you know. And so that was the time when industries were growing and they could make mistakes and they could still sell products. So you could have one income. Taxes were low. You know, you had a single person earning money, usually the dude, you know, and, and, and why stay home with kids. Uh, but on that single income, working nine to five, you know, with an hour for lunch paid, you know, so the people are working seven hours a day, you know, five days a week. Uh, and they've got, you know, a couple of cars, a couple of kids. They've got a house. They've got maybe a cottage, second home. They're taking vacations. They're doing all this stuff. They've got investments. They're saving for the future all on one income. Now, that's comfortable. But it's also but it's not complacent because people had values. They had God. Uh, most people, whether they're Christian, Jewish, or, or Muslim or Hindu, whatever it is, they had values. They had, and we believed in America. We had American values. We were proud of our country. And there's certain things that uh, we would tolerate and not tolerate as Americans. That's what I think has gone. It's the fact that we've lost our values. We've lost our value as Americans. We've lost our American culture as the leftists try to say there's no American culture. So if you take God, family, and country out of the equation, now you can get complacent because it's just me, man. It's just me. I don't care. 
you know, and as long as if you can be comfortable with values or you can be comfortable and complacent without them, and I think that's when the problems come in. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, yeah, and I agree with that, too. Um, there was a quote, I don't remember by which one, but one of the presidents, maybe Adams, don't know exactly, but said mm-hmm. that religion and morality are indisputable, um, indispute, indispensable, not indisputable, indispensable. Mm-hmm. Um to the freedoms of this nation, and another one of them, um, actually quite a few on the importance of having religion and morality. And I remember learning that in a lot of the state constitutions, whenever the states were first founded, mm-hmm. one of the um, things in there was to highlight that. And like with an education, it was that that was a priority, was religion and morality. And it it was like religion, morality, and education, that those are really important. And now they're getting rid of morality, like literally vocally specifically saying to get rid of morality that it doesn't exist. So, <laughs> and they're not yeah, being you, very secretive about it. Yeah, you hear the people on the left say you can't legislate morality. I'm like, well, what do you think our, what do you think our legal code is based on? It's based on morality. Of, of the diff- yeah. Morality is distinguishing between right and wrong. So our legal code. You know, don't steal, you know, you know, life, liberty, and property. Don't say, take someone's life. Don't take someone's liberty, in other words, kidnapping or whatever, and don't take their property. Those are the three main current, you know, crime areas, but those are our three ideals, to protect life, liberty, and property. That's the job of government. And what's interesting is that, uh, this, and I forgot, I think maybe it was Franklin that said that uh, this, this country is designed for a moral people, that you have to have morality, uh, otherwise the whole thing doesn't work because there's a tremendous amount of freedom here that people can take advantage of, and they do, and switch us over to democracy and then bribe people to vote for all kinds of ridiculous things like other people's income, uh, like the whole student loan thing, you know, getting people who didn't take out the loans paid for them. So that's crazy. So, so we have a lack of morality here. But, she, but a free country of a free people with morals and values and God is a completely different situation than a bunch of barbarians who just want for themselves. You know, that doesn't work. And so that's where I think our, our big problem is. So the founders are right. Um, but, uh, you know, the, yeah. the question is, how do we get the morality back? That's, that's what's uh, that's the big thing. And they keep diluting it with uh, the, with the barbarians. I say, I kind of like that word. It seems, seems much more appropriate. Hmm. Yeah. One of the um, main ideas right now is that it all starts with children, like the new generation. And right now right. the children are being targeted in um on both sides and one of them is good like because well the thing is i think they know how important the next generation is the youth is the children are Mm -hmm. because you know that's where you lay a foundation and so Mm -hmm. you have one side that's trying to completely change it they want religion and morality out of it they want to make global citizens of the children that are just obedient to the state or like orwell says obedient to the party um and then you have um, the other side who say, no, we do need religion, we do need morality, we need these kids to be their own individual selves, knowing right from wrong, thinking for themselves, being educated and um, knowing how to take care of themselves, and, and different things like that, and not being dependent mm-hmm. upon the government for everything. Yeah. So I think there's two different sides that both understand what the what they need to do in order to change this. Oh, sure. That's what a government education is about. It's a free education. Everybody has to go to the government school. Well, that's how the government indoctrinates people because they know, uh, as the Catholic Church knew from, from you know, a thousand years ago, <laughs> that if you get the kids, 
you know, the Catholic Church says, you know, give us a kid, you know, by the time they're four, they'll be Catholics for life or six or whatever the age was. Um, but the government schools do the same thing. They're indoctrination centers. That was the whole purpose of a government education. The, it's the Prussian model from the 1800s to make people caught in the wheel. And the problem we have as people who love freedom uh, is that we have to take people that uh, as kids believe in freedom, because I think people are born believing in freedom. I think it's a natural instinct that everybody, you know, wants to be free, wants to make their own decisions, wants to make their own choices, even if they're five years old. However, they get conditioned and indoctrinated to the point where they become, you know, world citizens and global citizens and give up all the things that they used to have naturally. I think with natural rights come natural instincts. I never thought about this before, but it, it sort of makes sense. And so what we have to do, and this is our burden, is to take people that have been through, you know, K through 12 indoctrination and bring them back to where they were at five years old. Before they start, or four years old, before they were, when they started school, so where they not only naturally believe in freedom, they had the maturity to to exercise it. It's like you, you're you're already at a point now where no indoctrination is going to work on you. You cannot be convinced that communism is a better way. You cannot be convinced that God doesn't exist. You cannot be convinced of the indoctrination that drag queens in school are really a good thing because that'll make the kids more open to alternative lifestyles. That's not going to affect you, right? But take a four-year-old, five-year-old starting school. They may have all the same natural beliefs and a good sense of right and wrong already, but by the time they come out, K-12, or even college, even worse, they're unrecognizable with who they used to be. Right? Yeah, and there's been cases of that um, where parents are like saying that they lost their children because they completely changed just by going to college. And I think having a foundation is very important. Well, I'd like to see all the money taken out of the college system. Let them self-fund. You know, a lot of the private colleges have huge endowments. And I was listening to a news show on that. Let them do that themselves. The, uh, the student loan program needs to come out of the government. Uh, and the colleges need to stop being funded with taxpayer money. <clears throat> so let them, let, them, you know, let them run like a business. Fund themselves. If it's that good and it's that valuable, then they will be competitive and find a price by which, you know, that uh, people can afford to go uh, with private loans issued by the colleges themselves. Anyway. What was on your mind this week? You know, it's kind of ironic, too. It's like if okay. they're getting – if the colleges themselves are getting all this taxpayer funding, right, but right. they're charging their students thousands and thousands of dollars where it's, like, uh-huh. impossible not to go into debt, at least in some one instance, which is also kind of ironic. It's like unless you're extremely rich uh-huh. you, or you have, like – your parents have a really good set of money and you're able to save thousands thousands of dollars over the years. Mm-hmm. And even then you'd have to be kind of well off in order to completely pay off your college. Right. So no matter what, if you want to go to college, you're going to be in debt. And the same for buying a house and in many instances buying a car too. Um, mm-hmm. Now a car might be a little bit easier in some instances. but um, So it's kind of interesting how we have this kind of consumer society of going into debt. And something interesting when I was talking about the 20s is they had credit. They didn't call it technically credit cards. They just had, like, a credit system. Mm-hmm. And in it, what they call it is carrying debt. Mm. I thought it was very interesting because it's kind of what it is, right? But so we should call it we debt cards. It <laughs> it's not a credit card. It's a debt yeah, card. Yeah, debt cards. Right. Yeah, because you're not giving somebody yeah, else credit. Because yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, by using a credit card, you're immediately putting yourself into debt, whether it's $20, whether it's $300. You're going into debt by that much, and then you have to pay it off. It's interesting how it's kind of like everybody's become accustomed to debt. And just, I don't know. Oh, most people live their whole lives in debt. 
most people live their whole lives in debt and die in yeah. debt, you know, because they want now. I'm but also, also uh, well, there's a way out of that. There's a way out of that. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it's funny how our society has gotten there because, you know, one thing that um, God says is that we should stay out of debt, that debt is bad. Um, our founders knew that debt is bad, you know, as um, a policy. You know, you should mm-hmm. not go into debt as a country. That's dangerous. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was like a foundational principle, you know, debt is bad. Don't go into debt. And yet mm-hmm. now we're in a society where it's like it's the only thing they promote in order to be successful is to get into debt. No, because then you steal all other people. And I think of interest as, as what I call dead money. Anything you pay an in interest to somebody else is dead money. That's money that you pay out that you get absolutely nothing for. And so, yeah, you've gotten some, some purchase. But, uh, you know, well, I, I want to give you an example here. And this is, this is more, more personal than I should get into. But I came out here to Florida uh, completely out of debt. You know, I was a successful tour guide in San Francisco. We made a ridiculous amount of money for talking and driving duck boats and cable cars. Uh, people were really generous, and I was pretty good at it. You know, I was funny. <laughs> so so I, did, I did really well. So I came out here debt-free with a bunch of money in the bank. Well, uh, as it you know, turned out, cost of living and uh, my initial job uh, didn't pay a whole lot. And the cost of living was lower here, but it didn't quite match up. And so in order to create Action Radio, I've actually lost all my savings. But to me, it's worth it. Um, because I'm able to do things and create things that no one else has been able to do. So here's, here's a value judgment question. Uh, if I bought, you know, stuff, fancy dinners, you know, toys, <laughs> whatever my toy might be, um, you know, like 15 guitars, for example, if I spent that money stupidly, that would be bad debt. But I think by, by spending it and, and going into debt to keep Action Radio going, to me, that's worth the risk because I know someday – you know, I'm going to get, uh, you know, paid, rewarded and make back out of debt. And then I can be really responsible again. Uh, that's when I talk to Derek Park, our financial guy, and say, hey, Derek, <laughs> things are better. You know, and things are better than, than they were. I mean, there were some really, you know, harsh times with this. But I always knew God had my back. And I knew that I was going to be able to, to you know, basically weather everything. I'd never be, you know, homeless out there with, uh, with an unplugged microphone. I always knew I'd be able to keep doing this. And so far, you know, that's exactly what's happened. So debt for a purpose. We don't really talk about this too much. People that believe in something, start something new, entrepreneurs, anybody. You look at uh, Hershey, went broke like four times. Um, Thomas Edison took over a thousand light bulbs. I think he was in debt. Uh, the, the, the Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie in the steel mills, I think he lost like two or three before it finally worked out. So, so bankrupt, this is why we have bankruptcy loss, because a lot of times it takes several massive failures, you know, before, before something finally works out. You know, I spent my entire working life trying to start a career. Now that I'm at retirement age, I finally found a job I like. <laughs> you know, how do you figure that, right? Um, so is there, is there a difference in debt? Do you distinguish, as I do, you know, good debt versus bad debt? That if you have a purpose behind it and you think it's worth the risk, then it's worth doing. Um. Overall, I think you should stay out of debt. Um, oh, I think so, just too. Just on a <laughs> basic me level. I think <laughs> yeah, I agree. But... If you take like a, a, if you take a careful, good risk on it um, mm-hmm. with high probabilities and it's something that, you know, is really important, mm-hmm. then, yeah, that would be a good instance to go into debt. But it would, be want, it would want to be something that, you know, you could overcome and get out of easily, too. Well, not easily, but I think I can overcome all debt is a chain. Well, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and debt is a massive problem. But how do we? Is well, should we have a better system for entrepreneurs? 
is there, I mean, venture capital is one way of doing it, you know, but how do we, uh, you know, other than debt, you know, in other words, I'm borrowing against, you know, a future, but, but who's going to, you know, when you do something that's never been done before, there's no track record for this, for, you know, when we talk about action radio, there's no track record. No one's ever done this. No one's ever combined a radio show with a citizen legislature and hope to build a movement around it. This is completely new territory. So who's going to take a risk on me? Yeah. Um, well, also for entrepreneurs, I think one of the most difficult things is kind of the economy that we're in now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whenever they started switching over to silver and they started adding in inflation, um, mm-hmm. that that was something that kind of led to a problem because it was like there was all this money that they didn't actually have. And, right. of course, you know, banks not holding all the money that was actually there. They didn't actually have the money of the people whose money they were supposed to hold and they were supposed mm-hmm. to have. Mm-hmm. Um and so that there's a lot of problems with that because people couldn't get their own money. And as soon as people don't have control or access to their money, it, it's not really their money anymore. It's, it's the government money. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of the other kind of ideas of debt, too. Um, well, inflation is a kind of debt because so, it, it takes 2 to 3% of your money, 5% of your money, 7% of your money per year in the value of it. It reduces the value of your money. So if you earn... $50,000 yeah. through work, that $50,000 might be worth 5% less. So you take off, uh, you know, what a 50% would be 10% would be 5,000, $2,500. Bucks. So you've lost $2,500 in purchasing power simply because inflation you know, lowered the value of your money. Yeah. And I don't know a lot about how the taxes work with business or how things are transferred, but um, mm-hmm. I've learned that, you know, Whenever you buy something, of course, it's taxed. Whenever a business receives it, they get taxed for receiving that money. And then um, no, sales just tax. use like a dollar tax. for an instance. Yeah. Like if you yeah. go to a grocery store and you pay mm-hmm. $1 for something, you're taxed on that dollar, right? Business mm-hmm. gets that dollar. The business is then taxed for the profit of that dollar. Then if they give it to their employee, then it's taxed. Then the employee gets it. And it's part of their income tax. And if the employee wants to go and use that dollar to go and buy something, then it's mm-hmm. taxed again. And so that's mm-hmm. something that you hear a lot. It's like you have one dollar that's taxed 14 different ways. And so, yep. and then of course, whenever these employees have to do like um, your social security matchups, their health insurance matchups, or all these other different payments, and and they're responsible for all of this different money and all these different restrictions on them. And they don't really have a lot of freedom in how they want to run their business. There's so many different restrictions and so many people trying to come after them, tear them down, especially small businesses. A lot of these um, big businesses or corporations and stuff that, you know, get bailouts or exemptions or have friends in high places, you know, they get off. But it's the um, irregular American man or woman who – are taking the blunt end of this. And that's why a lot of small businesses are having troubles. Yeah, we create And the shutting jobs down. Too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's interesting. And there was something the... interesting that I heard about, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like, your average stores, like Target or Walmart or different things like this closing down. And it was actually a really interesting take because, you know, there's a lot of things that, like, boycott kind of like the evil of Target and everything like mm-hmm. that because you don't want to buy into something you don't agree with, which I agree with that idea. If there's a company who promotes things that you don't agree with, you obviously don't want to give your money to somebody that um, you don't agree with what they're providing or what they're pushing, obviously, right? Yep, yep. Consumer have, consumers have that choice. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things is a lot of places are closing down their stores from theft. 
um, might be a com combination of theft and losing um, money from lack of shoppers or something. I don't know. Well, if you have a lot of theft, who's going to shop at us with a bunch of looters? It's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And so those, all those workers are going to be losing that average job, and those communities are going to be losing those businesses. So one oh, yeah. of the things that and, – and it was really interesting when I heard about this, and it kind of tied it all together in a bow. Um, and it was that – I think it was Chicago maybe. I don't remember exactly – but they are making a government grocery store. Have you heard about this? No, this is new. I'm, I'm curious. So, so, is, so the government's actually creating. The, they're going into business. They're going to the grocery business because the the, the other yes, stores. And of course, the government doesn't care if people steal because they're only they're stealing taxpayer paid for groceries, right? Yeah, well, it's because they have a crisis because the grocery stores went out because of the theft and all the crime and everything. It's like they can't stay in a business. All they're doing is losing money. So they shut down, and it opens mm -hmm. a government grocery store. And so then it's like, okay, so why – because, you know, one of the things is why are the businesses and are being – you know, because they're being forced to push all this stuff. And it's like, why are they doing this? They're obviously losing millions and millions of dollars. You know, um, why are they not enforcing crime policies in all of these places? Why are they just letting businesses be shut down? And then it's like, oh, wait, could it be that the government wants to take control over those necessary aspects of our lives? Like where we get our food, where we get our clothes, where we get our basic necessities. Um, it's kind of like that idea of control your resources. Like I was, I was reading um, – I think it was on the, one of the UN pages about um, putting the air pollution. It's no longer just an urban thing. It's a rural thing and stuff. And you hear about cloud seeding. No, and sometimes not. they put, our, they put chemicals <laughs> into the Yeah. Oh, well, the chemtrails? cloud seeding itself is actually like a proven fact that that's happened for many years, like with the clouds themselves. It's the chemicals kind of thing that some people are disputing whether they're spraying toxic chemicals into the air or not. Yeah, I'm one of those people um, disputing that, by the way. Yeah, I think it's a bunch of nonsense. Yeah, but the cloud seeding like, itself with, with the clouds, that's not really like deniable. No, that's silver nitrate. That's but actually fairly well is. known to, to see clouds to promote rain. It doesn't guarantee it, but it's, it greatly yeah. increases the chance of getting rain. I understand that. I think that's probably a mistake, too. But, uh, yeah, you've got a lot of yeah. interesting points here. Um, let me just hold you up for a little bit and we can uh, keep – or did you have more? Did you want to say more on this? Um, I don't think so, but okay. I'm not used just to that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Well, here, now, now, think about this. A government grocery store, all right? So, if, so the obvious solution is the one you mentioned, that if they just increased law enforcement to where it used to be and they started arresting people for shoplifting, you wouldn't have this problem. The stores would be there and they'd be private. But the fact that uh, the, the government has, has done exactly the wrong thing, they've promoted looting, they've uh, not arrested the looters, they've created a situation where the stores you know, can't sell enough, where the cost of theft is greater than the profit you know, from selling. So they can't, they're out of business. They have a negative cash flow. They have negative income. They're, they're actually they're losing money, so they're leaving. So the government, rather than fixing the situation, creating a tax-free zone uh, or, or, and arresting all the looters, you know, to help the business to stay, has decided to go into business themselves. Now, I think that should be illegal. Government should never be in business ever anywhere. Unless it's like the I only agree, thing I yeah. think of, yeah, the only exception I think is like the, like the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And this is what people say, well, the government's a corporation. No, it's not. <laughs> this is an insurance company within the government to guarantee uh, your deposits up to a certain amount. So if the bank closes or there's a run on the bank, you still, have, you, you still get your money back. 
up to whatever it should, you know, it's like, I think it's 250,000. It should go back to 100,000. If you have more than $100,000 in a bank, you've got other problems. But anyway, uh, but isn't it interesting that the government wants to do that? Now, what happened during COVID? How many small businesses were canceled or, or were, were, went out of business? How many small restaurants? I think, what, two-thirds of the small restaurants in California are either in trouble or gone? Um, and so they have, but who yeah, survived? The, the big, the big restaurants. Shut down. Yeah, so the Walmarts, the Targets, the, uh, uh, the big supermarket chains, they were all open during COVID. Well, who was closed? The mom-and-pop markets, the small people. So the big business who contributes to the Democrats and Republicans, who wants to basically get rid of the competition, you know, it's like Archer Daniels Midland, the big uh, company, uh, big farm company, would love to get rid of all the family farms and own them themselves. You know, so this is a huge problem. If government goes into business and promotes big business over small business, they've completely, you know, screwed around with the market. There's no free market anymore. And that's a huge problem. So yeah, how do you get actually the, you something about, like, uh-huh. problems in agriculture. Um, I don't know why it's popped in my head, but I guess it's kind of similar. They're hmm. having some problems with... Um, cross-pollination and this kind of big movement of going seedless because one of the problems is um, with going with going seedless obviously if you don't have seeds you can't regrow that vegetable right mm-hmm. so that's one thing doing the cross-pollination is kind of um, mixing in these like kind of GMO um, vegetables from a different area to another area and it's affecting their own um, what's that? And then I was hearing this one story. I don't know if it was true or not. Um, uh-huh. I honestly don't know. It was like a commentary kind of person that was talking about this. And they were telling a story. I don't remember who it was. But I was talking about a farmer who always had, like, the best crops. And I guess he would go and, like, plant his seeds and, like, the people surrounding him. And he always had the best ones. And they were asking why and why did he go plant them. And he was around him. And he was saying, well, um, if they have one kind and I have one kind, and theirs can affect mine. But if they have good ones surrounding me, then mine is going to be good as well. Because I guess there's like an understanding of how, you know, crops can affect each other with cross-pollination. Um, and it's also interesting whenever I was going back to like um, the Great Depression, Great Depression and such, whenever the government was paying, it was like, what was it, like six cents or something for every corn that wasn't grown or something like that? Mm-hmm. They yeah, it's called a price support. People not to grow food. And then yep. you hear today, the government's going around paying them, like, shut down their farms or stop production or, you know, mm-hmm. they're for a little bit. I don't know if they still do, but they were acquiring, like, um, these certain vaccinations for cows, and it was killing them um, by hundreds and yeah, thousands really of them. They were just all just <laughs> dropping dead. Yeah. Well, hold on for a second. And it's it's really, a heat really, wave. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not the heat wave. Now, you got a really good point there. Um, talking about, let's go back to cross-pollination, then we'll get on onto uh, on, on the cows. Um, but uh, cross-pollination, there's, like, there's two ways to, to uh, you know, change plants. There's, the, there's this natural uh, cross-pollination, cross-breeding, things like that. Uh, and so different strains of fruits and vegetables. You know, we had 140 varieties of apple in, in the 1800s in this country. Why? Because they were cross-pollinated. They grew up in different regions. They adapted. They changed. You know, and so you had all these different varieties of apples. Now there's like, commercially, there's like six main ones. Um, and so that's what you see in the stores because it's more convenient. It's easier for the companies to grow that one thing. So they want to keep their, their product, you know, standardized. Um, that's why they grow all the same type of apple in the field, which means if one tree gets sick, they all get sick. 
which is a problem too. So they don't have any, any diversity. But it's more expensive to have four or five different kinds of apples in a field, even though it's better for the apples. So cross-pollination, that's natural. That's normal. GMO, genetically modified, is where they actually go into the genetic material, the DNA, and switch that around. That is a problem. Because now you're creating unnatural you know, things that were, were not supposed to be here, like COVID, for example, was a created gene modified to be more infectious, more deadly, more resistant to, uh, to natural immunity, although those of us with a decent system managed to beat it anyway. Uh, so, that, so that's the difference between cross-pollination and GMO. Um, something interesting that uh, everybody else has forgotten, I, I pointed out, and never really made the news, Kamala Harris in, the, uh, in one of the debates um, back in 2016 said something really fascinating. She said, Americans expect us to put food on their table. Not that Americans expect to be, able to, to be able to put food on their table, to work hard and be able to do that, but she says Americans expect us to put food on their table. So her view is that the government should be feeding America. And nobody picked up on that. And you can probably look up in the debates. I'm trying to get it up. I can't find a quote of it separately. I know it's there because I heard it. Yeah. But this makes sense um, with the, the government one. and the grocery stores. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, one of our presidents, I don't remember which one, but see, I have a great memory, huh? Um, <laughs> I probably said that four times already. But they were saying that um, it might have been Reagan, but it was like the most dangerous words you can hear from the government is, uh-huh. hi, we're from the government, we're here to help. And then there was one of um, Kamala Harris saying, the government is here to help. And he was like, they called it. No, that's that's particularly crazy. Uh, what were you saying about cows again? Um, was it, oh, the vaccination thing? Yeah. That's really scary. And so what they're doing yeah. is they're, they're – see, normally we can get around government stuff. Uh, you know, you can get around uh, products you don't want by not buying them. Pianchi on, on live chat is talking about he's switching his phone company. Uh, he wants to get away from the woke phone company. So he's moving to Pure Talk. So I'll take a look at them. Um, I understand that. Uh, I think I have AT&T well, right now at a convenience because it works. Uh-huh. Yeah, go ahead. I guess it was authorized. And so now Bill Gates can start selling, um, oh, what was it called? Like artificial meat, like fake beef, fake meat. There's How like could that possibly be authorized? Is it just artificial? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's some. So I had, if you look back at my Facebook pages, there was a, I found this Marie Callender's uh, vegan uh, pie, uh, and it had chicken, but it was C H I C K, you know, star N. So they didn't actually write the word chicken because that would have been illegal because it's not. And, and it's a plant based derivative. In other words, it's manufactured, uh, it's fake meat, it's not real. Uh, and so uh, they can do that because they're labeling it. As long as they label, I'm not too concerned because I'm not going to buy it anyway. Most people don't. It's like you'll notice all the, uh, the dairy products. Uh, they said they, you know, that uh, the FDA says that the RHBST growth hormone, that might be wrong letters, um, doesn't cause problems. And yet every product on the dairy shelf says made with you know, milk without RHBHT growth hormone because nobody buys it when it has the growth hormone. We don't want it. So, the, so you know, the government says, wow, it doesn't, doesn't cause any problems. Studies have proven it. We don't believe that. We don't want the growth hormone anyway. So as long as they label it, we can buy non-growth hormone milk and, and uh, you know, other products. And, uh, and that's a consumer choice. So with the meat thing, as long as they're putting on the labels, what the stuff really is, and we have actually some pretty good labeling laws. Check with the Federal Trade Commission. You put deceptive stuff on a label, that's a big penalty. And so that's one of the, the, the good parts of government. 
uh, that they are doing you know, relatively well, although they've, they've screwed around with the definition of natural uh, a few times. But uh, take a look at the, the labels. And they're, they're labeling the products, and we've got this code words now. Um, so you look at the labels. Look at, go through our Life and Health uh, coaching page, Action Radio Life and Health coaching page. There's a bunch of stuff there on, on different products that are fake. <laughs> you know, so that's how you can find out. But, yeah, uh, my concern is, like I say, most of the times we can get around things. We, we don't have to go to Target. You know, we can go somewhere else. But if they're, if they're, if they're putting, you know, messenger RNA, so-called vaccines, into all the beef, then the entire beef supply is tainted. And who's to say other countries aren't doing this too? Yeah. So you can't get around that if you're going to eat beef, unless you go to a local butcher, you know, and a local person that has local uh, meat, which is probably the best thing anyway. But, you know, this is why, you know, I eat a whole lot of wild-caught fish, because they're not messing with the wild-caught fish. I mean, the oceans aren't perfect, but it was a lot better than, the, than farm fish, you know, where they feed salmon orange pellets and carrots to make them look orange. Whereas the, the wild salmon, you know, have red and, and pink meat because of what they eat, the, the shrimp, the krill. So it's, uh, it's a very different thing. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. So how do we keep – so we're all getting more natural. We're all getting more locally produced uh, produce. We're all going to, I think, end up buying locally slaughtered meat. <laughs> you know, I mean, everything's going to go local, which is not a bad idea. It's actually the way it was back in the 1800s. Most of the food was local then. So maybe the trend towards local, if enough people are doing it, it will make local profitable again. And these big agribusinesses might die because nobody wants their, their stupid chemical products. It might work out. Yeah, I mean, it's going to work as long as these farms can stay open, that people can still go and buy, and the government quits trying to shut them all down. Interesting. I was learning something uh-huh. also from the Good Depression. It's called like the Farmer's Holiday Alliance. Do you, you oh. remember learning about that? Nope. What's that? And one of the things that they did is they were like going around, and whenever the, um, I guess it'd be the banks or something, or government, I don't know exactly, would um, take a farm because of, like, the debt or whatever, and so they would lose their home and everything that they had. This kind of holiday alliance would go around and threaten everybody and be like, you cannot bid on this. And, they, and so nobody would <laughs> bid on anything. And so they were able like to it. get the land they were able to get the land back for like just a couple of cents or something. I don't know. It was like a really low price. And then they were able to give it back to the original owner that had lost the land. And so it was like, this is right because I kind of like this, but at the same time, you don't don't want to go around threatening just people. Wait a minute. If the government's threatening you, if they're threatening to take away your farm, if they're creating a situation where it's more advantageous for agribusiness to buy your farm, uh, especially with the inheritance tax, if you can't keep your farm, if it costs more to your kids to give them the farm, you know, rather than just give it to them and and you'll make more money selling out to big business, that's extortion. So big business puts in an inheritance tax. All right. So that people can't pass on their family farms. That's happening all the time. So if the holiday yeah, alliance, farmers I, holiday alliance comes along and says, you know what? Yeah, we're going to do things the old fashioned way. <laughs> you ain't going to take the farm. <laughs> I kind of like that. It's like the, the Battle of Athens, you know, I where they too. had a, yeah, a little firearm. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> of, you know, taking care of their neighbors, like helping them keep their land because they knew just how important it was. Yeah. Um, so kind of helping I, I each other out in that way. Yeah, it's good and effective. It was very effective, it seems. Yep. Um, is it still around? I read. Is it still around or no? Uh, folks lost their age. I don't think so. 
Ah, too bad. Been like Americans 100 are, years. Well, um, this is what happens when the barbarians, uh, you know, enter your country and they stop being Americans. And you have a country of barbarians who don't care, who are only interested in themselves. There was uh, – well, let's talk about price supports for a bit because uh, this might be interesting to you. The, the whole idea of, of paying for, for uh, products that aren't grown. So back in the Depression, prices dropped. They dropped so low, it costs more to produce food than the farmers were making for selling the food. And farming is tough enough anyway with uh, seasonal changes, rainfall, you know, good years, bad years, you know, bad economies, good economies. Farming is tough. It's really tough uh, to make a living farming. And the Depression was almost impossible. And so what happened was the government came along and said, okay, we're here to help. (laughs) Uh, And so they said, okay, we're going to keep you in business uh, by paying you to not grow things. And this had two effects. One, the farmers didn't lose money because they're, they're making money on those fields that weren't growing things. And two, there was less produce of whatever they were growing, corn, you know, sugar, um, wheat, whatever it is that the farmers were growing, soybeans, I hate those things. Um, so because there was less of it, the supply was less, the price was up. So it was called a price support. So the government took taxpayer money, kept small farms in business. They kept farms from not growing things, kept the supply lower, and kept the prices higher. That's called a price support. I think it should be illegal. I don't see any reason for those now. Um, but that's how they did it. And so now this extended to uh, the big companies, Archer Daniels Midland. They got an ethanol subsidy. Well, why would you give a subsidy to produce corn oil, you know, to turn it, or to corn to produce ethanol for cars that really run better on gasoline, run worse on ethanol? And yet you're giving them a multi-billion dollar subsidy per year to produce a product that's actually worse than the original product, gasoline. There's a problem. Yeah, I actually need to want to look, need to want to look something up. Um, mm-hmm. During like the Great Depression and whenever they were starting to struggle and everything, did mm-hmm. anybody, like whether it was state or federal, lower or take away the taxes? Good question. Uh, I don't know, but because the incomes were so low, the taxes would have been lower too. Taxes were lower anyway in the 30s because the income tax only came in in 1913. And so it was yeah, still probably – like, well, Yes. Go ahead. Uh, um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. During Wilson's administration, one of the things yep. was the tariffs. And so it was like they were trying to get rid of this tariff problem, that's what they deemed. And so in order to kind of end that... Um, I mean, tariffs, tariffs, tariffs funded the whole government. But, <laughs> the whole government ran on tariffs. Tariffs yeah. were a good thing. Yeah. That's what funded the government. That's what yeah, the, the, I, I the, like the tax, tariff uh, method. Yeah. No, it's a much better system. But, because... What, yeah, what, our, who, go ahead. <laughs> this is fun. I was saying like our founders also were against the income tax. Because everybody is at the time the income tax is wrong, and people mm-hmm. today, not everybody today, but some people today are, are saying, you know, the income tax is wrong. And is so wrong. I think we should go back to tariffs because we need to what, – what amendment was it that was the income tax? Wilson. I don't know. Woodrow Wilson, the communist. Yeah. The president of, Pin- of Princeton. What amendment, uh, though? Uh, 13, uh, 16th. So the two, so the year the freedom died, as I call it, the year the freedom died, uh, was the year of the Federal Reserve Act, which turned all our money over to the central bank, and caused us to go from you know, caused the dollar to be worth three cents. The dollar is now worth three cents of what it was in 1913. So what you could buy in, in 1913 for three cents now costs a dollar. That's insane. That was the Federal that Reserve is Act. That's ridiculous. Yep. 
The second one was the 16th Amendment, which was the income tax, which a lot of people think was not voted in properly. But that's not the point. It still has to be repealed. However it was voted in, it's on the book, yeah. so it has to be repealed. And the other bad one was the 17th Amendment, which took away the, uh, the vote of uh, the state legislatures to appoint their senators. So the states in 1913 yeah. lost all representation in Congress. And the effect of that is that the states have no voice in the federal government at all anymore. And that is horrible because now we have, we're much closer to the evil of democracy such that uh, the, the moneyed interest can buy you know, senators now as easily as they could buy representatives. And so the whole Congress is bought. But when the senators were appointed and accountable to their states, it was very different. Now, here's the situation. Uh, Gavin Newsom has appointed a Maryland, you know, black lesbian, Emily's List pro-abortion woman to be senator from California. That's unconstitutional. She's not a California resident. How is she going to represent California? She has no history, no basis there, no anything. So the, re- the residency requirements alone disqualify her. And yet, do you think a single gelding Republican is going to say anything? I bet you not. She shouldn't be seated. That's You're kidding challenge. me. I'm not. Oh, this happened yesterday. I did yeah. not know about this. Yep, yep, yep. So uh, I forgot her name, but she, she ran Emily's List. She's a Democrat fundraiser. And she qualifies under the Democrat criteria of replacing the entire federal government with black lesbian women. <laughs> that's, just, that's my line. Get it? I don't think anybody else is saying it. But if you take a look, look at uh, the recent Supreme Court judge. I don't think she's a lesbian. She's a black woman. Uh, but uh, Kareem Abdul-Jean-Pierre, the, the press secretary, black lesbian. Uh, this woman, black lesbian. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me that the only people who are being appointed in government right now uh, are, are, are black lesbian women, which is, which is interesting because I was thinking about this. I mean, are there any white, straight, you know, non-mentally deficient Christian men in, in the, the uh, Obama um, Biden illegal administration. I can't think of one. All the white know. guys are gay. Well, All the white guys are gay. <laughs> What's that? At least, uh, at least it's obvious there's no Christians. Yeah. <laughs> there's no white Christian males in the in the uh, oh Biden administration. I just find that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but, uh, you know, it's when Trump ran things, you know, hit a bunch of, uh, you know, white guys and things seem to work pretty well. So all those people discounting white guys, I got news for you. We know how to do things because we don't have affirmative action. We have to be better. Right. <laughs> I don't know how much time yet. We're a little bit after the hour. Uh, but this is fascinating. Yeah. Um, did you have a topic for today or were you just kind of rambling? Because this is fun. <laughs> or was that your topic? Um, I did, but yeah, this was fine too. <laughs> um, so... It started on one thing, um, and then I kind of dug myself into a hole. That's okay. Uh, this is, this is action or reaction radio. We, we don't have a plan here. We just kind of go with what sounds good at the time. And so there's always another week. You know, we'll just keep it, uh, keep it going. But I think it's okay, much more so interesting was... to not stick to a plan uh, because sometimes what we come up with here, you know, uh, improvise is much more fun. Anyway, go ahead. What were you, you going to say? Yeah. Um, so this was about one of the um, sustainable development um, United Nations, World Economic Forum, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. This one was on the United Nations website, though, mm. um, in Africa, in like mid-September, I think, like 18th, around that time. Uh-huh. Um, what was it? Okay, so they were going over STI and SDG goals, which is science, technology, and innovation, 
and sustainable mm-hmm. development goals, which mm. sustainable development goals are also like Agenda yeah. 2030. Such. Global World Slavery. Um, so this, we should just call it, yeah, we should call so it GS, focus, uh, GWS, Global World Slavery. Slavery. Oh, no, that's hard. To, I'll, I'll think of a better one. Global World Slavery. That's hard to say. Yeah. Global Slavery. Right. So world Government Slavery. WGS. What? There we go. World Government Slavery. <laughs> go ahead, Bianca. <laughs> um, so this one looks like the main focus of it was science, technology, and innovation. And it's, also, did you hear about, um, oh, it was a couple weeks ago, I think, St. Fredericksburg, um, Florida, they were taking, like, steps in the smart city. Um, they were, like, putting in, like, cameras and microphone hmm. things, I think, and different kind of security measures and around the city. surveillance city. We're watching. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Who's um, watching? It was like, did you guys really not take Orwell's advice? Like, really just didn't think that through? Yeah, it's like, not my town. We got, we got rid of our traffic cameras here in Milton. <laughs> So we actually removed a, a, a Big Brother device. Those things actually cause more accidents because yeah. people see a red light, they panic, stop, and they cause a ton of rear-end accidents. Those things are actually dangerous. There are, there are times, you know, when uh, – and those, those things, you know, fail constantly, you know, and the people actually did stop and the camera said they didn't. And so anyway, so we got rid of our red light cameras. But that's just one of many things. Now, the surveillance state – I heard someone, a friend of mine told me he was driving through Orlando, and the um, – Somewhere in Orlando, they actually disable GPSs because they don't want people watching their GPS. They want them concentrating on the road. So there's actually a I, – I, this is from a friend, so I don't know. I, I imagine it's true. But there, have you ever heard of this before, that places will actually disable the GPS in a certain area? No, I didn't. Hmm. How can they do that? How can they just arbitrarily take away a service that you're paying for that uh, that allows you to go from here to there? I don't get it. But uh, let's go back to the surveillance city. Uh, was it Fredericksburg? Where is that? Um, Petersburg. St. Petersburg. Okay. So we're talking Tampa, Tampa, St. Pete. So that would be the Gulf Coast where I live. I'm up in the Panhandle, way up top. Uh, so Tampa, Tampa, St. Pete's a beautiful area from what I hear. But uh, is it being populated by uh, New York and New Jersey uh, expatriates? <laughs> I have idea. Um. Yeah, so, so I, go to, I mean, it looks like they have seven things from Department uh-huh. of Transportation, the Innovation District, um, Spectrum, SmartCities.com, all kind of information on it um, hmm. of what they're using technology-wise. It looks like that's, from what I learned, that's all that they're doing at this point. But Surveillance I stuff? I haven't yeah. really put it on. So yeah, it's one back of the, to one of the, kind of this idea. No, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I, um, I, got I was going to go back into it. it. So if you wanted yeah. to say something real nope, fast. Nope, nope. Well, as you can say, our, our Australian Bill of Individual Rights covers things like 5G surveillance, unwanted intrusions, and things like that. You have the right to be free of, of uh, surveillance. And so that's one of our things that we talk about. We're so far ahead of everybody else in terms of, uh, of updating our, our, our natural rights in our Australian uh, Bill of Individual Rights. Take a look at that sometime. It's right in writeyourlaws.com. Um, legislation that all proposed laws. It's like the sixth or seventh one down. But uh, that's got some pretty good stuff in it. In terms of preempting, it's the exact opposite of the UN uh, Charter on Human Rights. It's the complete opposite. So it's a blueprint for, for world freedom as opposed to uh, 
uh, world slavery, which is what the UN document's all about. Anyway, back to our surveillance town or whatever else you want to talk about. Yes. Um, so it says that there was five or a couple different countries. Mm-hmm. It was. It says the global pilot program is what this is talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, Ethiopia, Ghana, India, Kenya, and Serbia. And when I was reading, it's not on this page, so it's probably one of the others. I remember like one of the meetings were in Niger. And mm-hmm. it was last month. They just had a coup. Which is really interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. Because I was like, coup. they have a lot of problems in Nigeria right now. So. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Kind of interesting. They just, they're like, hey, we should really just have a meeting here. But anyway. Sure, why not? Um, let's go to Ukraine. Let's, yeah. let's have a convention in Ukraine while we're at it. <laughs> Sorry. It's kind of like Hawaii. Like, Hmm, you know, we're going to have a meeting here, and why is going to rush into chaos? And you know what? Let's come back and have another meeting here. Yeah, let's go Let's go to the convention okay. of barbecuers. We'll go to Maui. We'll have a grill fest. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm worried the barbecues are the next uh, target, by the way. Barbecues are the next target. You know, gas grills, that's a, you know, gas barbecues. They don't want to touch that. That's, that's really American. You start messing with barbecues, people are going to get upset. Gas stoves, I think they're, they're able to tolerate because they're stupid up north. Um, and electric light bulbs, yeah, we've got these LED bulbs. They're pretty cool. They actually work better than the incandescents. But uh, uh, I'm curious, if the, do you think the government's going to mess with our barbecues with the gas grill? What do you think? Or is that just too far? Is that the, is that the, the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back? Is that the extra step that is going to cause the rebellion messing with the barbecues, the gas grill? What do you think? I think they will try it if they can. And from what I've, from what you see and you've learned, I don't know how much of a backbone there is in different areas. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, it can't be done on a federal level. I don't think it can be done. Now, well, they're doing it by regulation. Maybe eventually, if we keep heading yeah. down this, if we keep heading down this path, it can happen eventually. But mm-hmm. at this point, like I think. Because they're already trying it, like in New York, and, and banning gas stoves and ovens and such. So I, mm-hmm. I think it depends on your region. Well, I'm just thinking that uh, where where do we barbecue in this country? We barbecue in the South. <laughs> we grill, you know, Texas. <laughs> we're the great barbecue states. Uh, maybe the Southwest has a pretty good barbecue tradition. You don't see a big barbecue tradition in New England because it's cold six months of the year. So they don't care. So they're not going to object to this. But you, you piss off the South and Texas and all the places that barbecue <laughs> and they start messing with the gas grills, that, that would be cause for rebellion. I think that would, uh, that would definitely, you know, uh, there, there would be a verbal insurrection. There would be some, uh, some really strong words. And there, there could even be protests. We might just start grilling outside the White House and say, you can't have any. <laughs> anyway. Back to you. Okay, so, so yesterday... Uh-huh. This uh-huh. kind of made me think of this. Yesterday, I was thinking about something, and I was like, I have not heard, because in the past in history, you hear about all these different protests for all these different wars, and one of the biggest ones that uh-huh. <clears throat> that you hear about is the Vietnam War. There was like a ton of protests, but all the wars uh-huh. had, you know, protests of some kind, right? Uh-huh. So I was thinking, and I was like, has there been any, like, demonstrating protests against the war Ukraine or funding the war Ukraine. No. Because one of the big things is like we don't nope. want to fund the war in Ukraine. Okay. And so, so I was like, I this... haven't heard anything about it. Yeah. That's because it's just money. Well let me ask you, what's the difference between uh actually Korea too? Korea and Vietnam. 
were different than Iraq, Afghanistan, and Ukraine in terms of wars by one huge factor. Will you impact us? Mm-hmm. I want you to think for a minute. What was the difference? What was the big government difference, policy difference? Oh, that's my answer. Between, between, oh, what was it again? What was your answer? I'm sorry. Didn't affect us personally? It, it, like, didn't it directly impact us? Well, you're right peripherally. The difference was the draft. Korea had a draft, but people weren't protesting it because they were all, you know, virtuous Americans. They didn't realize that it was a stupid, wasteful war that never should have been fought. Uh, it's different than World War II. So the people that fought World War II, a lot of those same people fought in Korea because it was only five years later. Now, uh, Korea yeah. had a draft. Vietnam, but there was a draft in World War II. Yes, there was. But that, they didn't need it because so many people volunteered way above the draft requirements. So the, the draft wasn't an issue in World War II because we were fighting Nazis and uh, yeah. the Empire of Japan. So that wasn't an issue. People volunteered like crazy. In fact, they were ashamed if they didn't volunteer. Now, let's talk about Vietnam. Vietnam had a draft, too, and Vietnam had massive protests. The protests, here's what's interesting about history. The protests ended when the draft ended. The draft ended in 1972 when I got here to the United States. The protests ended in 1972. Also, 1972, too. <laughs> but when did the war end? Oh, for noodles. Trivia. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to use my handy dandy Google. So the draft ended in 72. Are you asking me directly, or is this like seeing if I know kind of thing? Because I'm Googling. No, 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 I'll just tell you. No, I'm not trying to trip you up or anything like that. Okay, 75. 75. So the war war lasted three years longer than the draft, and nobody was protesting. See, people didn't object to people volunteering to go fight, you know, a war that uh, most of us disagreed with. That wasn't a problem. The problem was when people who did disagree with the war were forced to go, compelled to go by law to go fight for a cause they did not believe in, especially if they were killed, and their families were furious. That's why a lot of people went up to Canada to, quote, dodge the draft. But the draft never should have existed because it was a stupid war. It had nothing to do with uh, our, our, our defending our nation because Vietnam was not going to come here with boats and airplanes and uh, bomb us and, you know, invade our beaches. It wasn't going to happen. So there's no reason for that war. Yeah. So the draft ended. So the, the, key, the key difference is the draft, that people protested the draft as much, if not more, than the war. So when the draft ended, the protests ended. But the war went on for three years. So that's interesting. Yeah, right? and there's one, there's one thing that I think in that aspect. Like if we, there's something like World War II where Japan was literally out for blood or something that's like directly impacting mm-hmm. the American safety. That's one thing. And mm-hmm. one of the ideas was the domino effect, right? They were right. kind of afraid of this. Now, that's kind of where it gets into a tricky thing where it's like since it since these countries or these problems aren't directly at this time impacting America, it should be just completely volunteer. I don't think that a draft or forcing people to go into this when it doesn't directly affect America, I think that's part of it too, is a lot of people were kind of against it, makes it more of something where it's like volunteering because I think a lot of that hatred, I think you're right about that, comes from, you know, being forced to go and do something. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, technically they're domino theory was kind of right because right now we're experiencing a lot of communism problems in america so i mean technically they're right yeah, so we fought but, wars to make sure that other people wouldn't go communist and yet the only, and yet here we have actually we actually have a communist illegal coup government 
and they don't object to that. Yeah. Where's well, the I mean, protest against that? <laughs> That's interesting. It's because there's been, like, this culture inf- infiltration and a complete change. Mm-hmm. And yeah. another one of the problems that I've learned about, and I don't know much about these issues, so I mm-hmm. could be completely wrong, completely okay. wrong from what I have well, learned, but I've learned a lot. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it seems like um, from the war, at least in Vietnam, I don't. I think I know a little bit more about Vietnam than I do Korea. But mm-hmm. with it, I know that it was like a very lenient kind of thing where um, it was like they weren't completely full force, but they weren't um, really weak in it. And it was like they're kind of leery on some steps is, is what I've been kind of like hearing about and learning about it. Um, and so it was like if there was more of like an aggressive idea of just get in and get it done and solve the problem, then it may mm-hmm. have been a different result if we had actually won the war instead of um, well, how would, having uh, which, it being dragged down a how, how would you win Korea? Vietnam. Oh, Vietnam. How would you win Vietnam? What would, what would cause us to win Vietnam? And this really gets to the I don't know the, the a lot about it. I don't system. know all of our tactics or where we were or uh-huh. any of that idea. Um, well, obviously, I know where we were, but I mean, like, mm-hmm. specific well, no, locations it, it, within it. World War II was won because the enemy surrendered. So that was, that was the win, was unconditional surrender. Both Germany and Japan surrendered. That's what ended the war. So that was a victory. Now, the question is, do we have to go as far as we did with atomic bombs? I don't think so. Uh, there's an interesting plan. Uh, Admiral King had the opposite plan of MacArthur. MacArthur wanted to go invade the Philippines, invade every island, invade everything all the way up to Japan. The cost of life was horrendous uh, on our side, on their side, and of the, the, the folks that lived on these different islands and in the Philippines. Cost of life was ridiculous. Admiral King had a plan, which wasn't as dramatic, not as egotistical. His plan was to cut the Japanese supply lines. In other words, have, put a, like a, a wall, uh, a blockade, you know, about mid-Pacific and cut off all the Japanese troops below that line, which was the Philippines and all the islands that we invaded, uh, and basically starve them out. And so that eventually the, the Japanese troops would run out, actually fairly quickly, of ammunition, food, all those kind of things. Um, and then uh, those troops would have been lost. They, they couldn't have been supplied. So they could have easily been captured and taken over by the folks that lived there. So that was one idea. That never happened. But we could have done that. Just cut the supply Yeah, but line. also... Uh-huh. Um, one of the things is because of the, like, um, brainwashing indoctrination of these Japanese soldiers, you know, they were just kind of killing themselves. Like, they honestly, like, just didn't have a care. Um, one thing, mm. they would not well, they be captured. Eventually. Like, they would rather kill themselves. Yeah. Well, yes, not, as a whole. And that was after the bombs. And so I understand, like, cutting off the supply lines could have very well worked. I didn't know about that. I didn't know that was a... Admiral oh, King. Substitute yeah, plan for dropping bombs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know exactly and, uh, how that worked, but I mean, I mean, just think it worked in the um, American Civil War. They kind of were trying to like block it in. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, generally, the supply lines is a really effective strategy. So oh, and maybe even a better one, but I don't know a whole lot in it. But oh, studying military before history, knowing really that, quite fascinating. Yeah, and aside yeah, from uh, it, uh-huh. I would uh-huh. say the bombs was. I would say that it was a, a good decision in our part, too, because they were not letting up with, with all the destruction and everything. And America was like, we want to be done with this war. We, you know, we want our troops out. We want this to be over. And they're just mm-hmm. not giving up no matter what. And they had sent, they were dropping flyers by the thousands so that everybody could get them. They were notifying everybody all the time. They were doing radio broadcasts. They were doing alarms. They were doing everything they could to let everybody know 
that there was going to be a bomb here, evacuate the city. But the Japanese government was like, oh, no, 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 don't do that, stay. Oh, no, 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 it's a lie. And so mm-hmm. their own government was lying to them, and that's kind of what resulted in, in all of their death and everything. Because America did everything the power to, you know, save the lives of all these citizens, but it was their own government that had killed them. Because mm-hmm. we were just trying to find a way to end this war and just get it over with, because they weren't getting up. And it worked after the second one. Yeah. Um, see, I would, see, I would have waged the war very differently. And it was actually interesting. I was learning about uh-huh. the pilot of Anola Gray, and he was saying that he was he didn't want a headstone or the funeral or anything, um, because he didn't want it to become like a big place of protest um, after dropping the bombs. So I thought that was pretty interesting, but also kind of sad that. You know, well, he had to live with it. Colonel Paul Tibbetts, everybody knows who he is, but uh, he had to live with the fact that he dropped the first bomb. Now, who, who was the pilot of the of Boxcar, the plane that uh, dropped the bomb in Nagasaki? Nobody knows. It's not public knowledge because it was the second bomb. Yeah. yeah. Now, I think a, a much better plan uh, was see. Now, now, here's what's interesting. People forget that wars traditionally in history did not result in surrender. The other side didn't surrender. The aggressors either were so badly defeated they just went home, you know, and wars ended uh, a lot. You know, in ancient history, a lot of wars, you know, they happened in the springtime because the weather was good. By the summer, it was too hot. By the fall, it was, you know, getting close to winter. Of course, nobody fought in the winter. That was crazy. Uh, so most of the battles were bought, you know, fought during good weather. Um, speaking of supply lines, supply lines are what stopped Napoleon. Napoleon was stretched too far, you know, into Russia, and the winter killed him. You know, Hitler made the same mistake. You know, they stretched all the way into Russia, and the winter killed all the, the supply lines and the soldiers, and everything froze. And so supply lines are critical. If you cut the supply lines, you cut off the ability to fight. So here's a value judgment question. Were, let me ask you a couple of questions, actually. Were we fighting the government of Japan or the people of Japan? Um, well, I mean, physically... We were fighting, of course, the soldiers. Mm-hmm. I guess we're citizens who became we soldiers and stuff. But, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, most soldiers yeah. were drafted. Right? Well, okay. a lot of them were probably forced. Some of them may have wanted to have. No, they were ideological. Yeah, there's always the fanatics that want to fight, you know, and that's what that's what Hitler tried to do with his troops, tell them, yeah. turning them all into Nazi fanatics. But uh, a lot of the army general staff never bought into it. But the, if they tried to object, <laughs> they would be killed. So you know. But also. A lot of wars, I guess, especially in like modern kind of warfare, have uh-huh. been just political. Like it is war of government, war of politics, right? Uh-huh. Um, right? Usually, if it's like a war just against like the people of a country, it's normally like genocide or something, um, which can break out into um, tiny wars or something. But. But well, most wars just end. Or, they don't end know, the surrender. Uh, that's an unusual situation to demand an unconditional surrender. It was done in World War One, and I believe that surrender of Germany was so bad and put such horrendous conditions on Germany that it guaranteed World War Two. The fact that we entered World War One, yeah. that we fought, we tipped the balance. The Western Front. If you, if you ever see the movie or read the book, All Quiet on the Western Front. You know the the Germans fighting the French and the British basically stalemated on the Western Front. And there were millions of men who died for no reason at all that I can see um, that, uh, you know, they were doing cavalry charges and bayonet charges into barbed wire machine guns. And they all got killed on both sides. And the artillery killed everybody else. You know, and that's and so one of the, the risks with uh, war right. and why, you know, it's such a horrible thing. And the thing is that 
mm-hmm. you know, I still believe, you know, wars never happen. War is horrible. But obviously we live in a, a world where there is evil. So sometimes it is necessary, right? Mm-hmm. But of course we wish we would live in euphoria, but obviously that doesn't happen. But some of the things that come with this risk of war and why it's so important to, you know, try and stay out of wars, if possible, mm-hmm. is because of this kind of idea. They lost, you know, Germany lost. They got a blunt end of the deal because the winners had an upper hand, and the winners were angry because they had a lot of people that died. You know, mm-hmm. and both sides went into this understanding that somebody was going to lose. And so no, Germany I don't think, had to deal with the But they think it's going to be the other side. They didn't <laughs> start They never think exactly. they're going to lose. Yeah, yeah but, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so even though they didn't start exactly, they're obviously on the opposing side. And whenever you're on the losing side, you don't really have any leverage. And there's some, and sometimes there's not a whole lot of room for fairness. And I think it's kind of universal that, um, or mostly universal, obviously, not everybody, but that mm-hmm. Germany in World War I definitely got a blunt deal that definitely affected um, into World War II. Mm-hmm. But also I think it's a risk that you have to anticipate when you go into war with somebody especially if that is the United States. Let me ask you this. Did um, the war for independence, when we fought the British, when we got our freedom from England, did the British surrender to us? Is there a certificate of surrender, of unconditional surrender? Of unconditional surrender? Mm-hmm. Did the British I surrender? Know. I mean, the troops surrendered. I mean, the generals surrendered at various points in the yeah. United States. But did, the, did George III, did the monarchy of England, the government of, of, of Great Britain, did they surrender to the United States, to the colonies? Or did the war just end? She's looking up, folks. <laughs> this is interesting. Oh, yeah, sorry. I should probably okay. note that. Yeah, oh, I, I, I can tell now. I, I know you well enough, yeah. It is just cool. I already know about that. I don't know, but it didn't tell me anything about the monarchy. Okay. Yeah. So this is like a really important question for us to know. How did, I mean, besides how the war end? Like, how did it all yeah. end? How about the War of 1812? Did that end in a surrender? How about the Spanish-American War? How about the Mexican-American War? Do we have surrender documents from Mexico, from Spain, and from Britain? I'm curious. From Britain twice. I would say no. I don't think those wars ended in a surrender. My point is that, <laughs> that surrender... My point is that, that surrender is a relatively new factor of war, starting with World War I. So my point is that wars end, mm. but they don't always end in an official document of surrender. I do not believe that King George III signed unconditional surrender to George Washington. No, and yet, I don't know. Ah, see, this is an interesting question, isn't it? We'll look at this for next week. So, so, so here's, here's my question for you for next week. Take a look and find out if we have surrender documents from the War for Independence, the, 1812, the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, and the Spanish-American War. I'll bet you there aren't any. I've never heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. So what that mm-hmm. means is it's that we have ended... Maybe we just got... Uh-huh. Maybe we just had gotten so political within, like, the wars and stuff that, Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe we decided it needed to be official documentations or something. I don't know. But also sometimes, like, Mm -hmm. if you think about, like, some of the ancient wars or other wars before, um, I guess what would be called, like, the modern warfare, a lot of times Mm -hmm. whenever 
one side lost, kind of just conquered and taken over. Like, they just kind of, like, lost everything. Mm-hmm. Well, in this, it was like, of course, they split up Germany, but Germany was still kind of Germany. Um, no, it was split up because the Russians were, were holding half of it, <laughs> and the Russians weren't going to give it yeah. back. So unless we went to war with the Russians, that was going to happen. Pianchi makes a good point, and he's right, and I have forgotten this, but he's absolutely right. Mexico did sign a treaty. So the Mexican-American War ended with the Treaty of Hidalgo, Veracruz, or whatever it's called. So that would be a good one to look up. And in that treaty, we got California, New Mexico, Arizona, and, and I think eventually Texas. I'm not sure if that was the, the Mexican-American War or that was a separate one, but uh, we can look that up. But, yeah, there actually was a – so Mexico did surrender. And they gave us uh, land that we're pretty much occupying anyway uh, of those states, California. And this is why the, the, the movement La Raza, which is Spanish for the race, which is big in California when I was there, uh, they, they think that Mexico should get their territory. They should get that territory back. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> but, the, but there's a movement that wants, you know, California, Mexico, Arizona, uh, California, New Mexico and Arizona uh, and Texas to be uh, basically ceded back to Mexico. Which is kind of interesting. So, okay, so that one, that one was ended in surrender. So now we got one out of the, the – but that still doesn't explain the War for Independence. I'm not calling it the Revolutionary War because it was War for Independence from England. Uh, the War of 1812 and the Spanish-American War. Interesting, huh? Yeah. yeah. I was talking a little bit about um, McKinley in the Spanish-American War. From what I learned, it's actually pretty – like a pretty good way to handle, like – going into the war. Like, he was trying to stay out of it for as long as possible. So, I don't know. That was really good. Yeah. I'm just making a quick note here. And he had a lot of pressure, too, to go on it, like, despite that. Yeah. But my, my, and this is, but I think the question is, is, is unconditional surrender the only way you can end a war? So that's what they believed in, in World War II. Uh, Pianchi's got a couple comments here. You know, he's glad we have a country that kicks butt. Okay, that's great. But, you know, nuclear weapons. So this is my, why I asked the question, do you think we're at war against the government of Japan or the people of Japan? See, the atomic bomb was, was, was dropped on the people of Japan. Um, whereas the government of Japan, when we were attacking um, their, their ships, sinking their ships and invading their bases and things like that, that was attacking the government because those soldiers were working for the government of Japan. And so I make a distinction between the people and the government. I did not believe in the, the bombing of uh, Germany bombing British cities or Britain and America bombing German cities because that's war against the people. So what you want to make war on is the things that make war, the factories, the supply lines, the ships, the airplanes, the tanks, the weapons of war, and, and the supplies of war. That's where you make war. So could we have not defeated Japan by simply sinking most of their ships, which we did, uh, you know, sort of ruining most of their bases or destroying their bases, uh, we, we could have bombed their bases. We didn't, didn't have to Japan invade them with like Marines. one ship left? I'm not sure. Uh, there would be something interesting to look up. But in other words, there was not enough to effectively attack the United States. So in other words, my solution would have been to do the King Plan to cut all the supply lines to the southern half or more of the entire Japanese forces, right? And then... Uh, you know, basically destroy their capacity to invade us. And at the point where their military was destroyed, their factories were destroyed, their ability to wage war was destroyed, then you go home. You don't need to surrender. You don't need to humiliate a nation and bomb their citizens where hundreds of thousands of people died. And the fire, this is going to get a little disgusting. You may not want to talk about this, but the firestorm rates, do you know how those work? They killed more people than the atomic bomb did by far. 
Firestorm Look it up raids? Firestorm raids, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if I want to get into this. Yeah, it's, it's pretty gruesome. Uh, look that up sometime. But the firestorm raids, uh, because those bombs actually created a firestorm in those. So the question is, with me, it is if you're at war, and war is horrible, if you wage war against the part of the country that can wage war against you, in other words, the government and the military and the cargo ships, they're included, they're carrying war material, any, anything supply-related or military weapon-related. If you destroy the capacity of the government to fight, you don't need, you don't need to humiliate the entire nation with a, uh, and keep on fighting. You've already beaten their military. So once you've beaten their military, you've, beaten, you've stopped the ability of them to come to the United States and do any damage. Then you go home. It's okay. We win. So surrender, yeah. me, it may have surrender been is not a legitimate goal. A timing thing. Yeah. Maybe it was, it, maybe they just wanted to end it faster than, you know, adding but actually months, took months or months on it. No, it took longer because by the time we were bombing Japanese cities, uh, to try and get a surrender and using the atomic bomb to get a surrender, Japanese military was already pretty much demolished. There wasn't much left of it. So at that point, you're into humiliation and you're bombing citizens. You're bom- and the Japanese people were under, uh, under an emperor. They were under a, a dictatorship. You had a military dictatorship of Tojo and you had a, a, a government dictatorship of the emperor, Hirohito. Well, the average citizen can't stop that. Any more than the average citizen can kick Brandon out of the White House, although we certainly should. We have an illegal government. How many people are standing up to it? Not many. Yeah, but I mean, also they did everything they could to make sure that the citizens didn't die. Where are they going to go? You can tell the citizens of Hiroshima, we're going to, we're going to, you know, you better get out of town. Something bad's going to happen. Yeah, they're going to drop a bomb. Right. Well, there were, and there was a Chinese official not too did. long ago said. They literally said that to. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. But the, there was a Chinese general that said, "We're going to bomb. We're going to nuke Los Angeles if you stop us from invading Taiwan." Has anybody in LA moved? No. Hmm. hmm. Interesting, huh? Yeah, it was interesting too. Like in Pearl Harbor, you know, they were. They said they received like the message that day before and that morning they had um, censored all the planes coming in. They're like, oh, don't worry about it. And then yep, they came yep. in. And- yeah. Let me let me um, let me state for the record. I absolutely believe that FDR knew the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor. Absolutely knew it. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Because this whole idea of the radar thing. Where did the Japanese planes come from? The Northwest. The flight of B-17s well, it says that in the they Northeast. Did. Uh-huh. Northwest. They did catch them on the radar, and they did, like, they did. report it and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, they said it was a flight of B-17s, right? They knew that they right? were coming. They just said, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they said they were just American B-17 bombers, but mm-hmm. not to worry about well, it. But here's the problem, though. We'd already broken the Japanese code, as far as I know. Yeah, the day Pretty before. Sure well, it was, it was only, yeah, that's what they say. I find that a little too convenient. I will bet you that we had broken the Japanese code and that FDR worked out a deal with Churchill 
that he was going to let Pearl Harbor be attacked, just like they uh, let the Maine be sunk to start the Spanish-American War, just that they, they let the Greer be sunk in the Gulf of Tonkin for the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution for Vietnam, just like the Lusitania, you know, was full of full of, of arms and weapons and ammo, and you know, the Germans knew it, and they said, you know, Americans don't take the Lusitania, it becomes a target, and when that was sunk, that helped get us into World War One. This is an old practice. This is like the Reichstag fire. Where Germany, where Hitler, yeah, you know, what? sets fire to the parliament and blames the Jews. I mean, this is an old practice of government. What do you think? What was Pearl the Harbor. ship called in the Spanish American War? The Maine. Remember the Maine. So like, the Maine. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So there was it was really interesting learning about that because it was at first like all the news that was like broke out and said that it was it was the Spanish that had um, bombed the ship or whatever or. Hit it. I think we uh, found it, didn't we? And some, <laughs> yeah, some people, like, I guess they did this thing that, because um, McKinley was like, well, I, we don't know exactly what happened here. I'm not going in until we know. And so he told them to do an investigation. And they came back and they said, okay, yeah, it was from an outside, like, grenade or something or other, I think is what they were saying. Um, and so he's like, okay, fine. We can go and uh, fight back. And then it turned out that it was actually um, an explosion from the inside of it. And oh, I figured that? out after the fact. Yeah. I don't know when exactly, no, wasn't like McKinley how killed? far after. McKinley was assassinated, wasn't he? I'm going to get Pianca in the line here in a second. Yeah. So was McKinley yeah, assassinated he was. after he said we're not going to go fight the Spanish-American War? Betcha, betcha. Mm-hmm. Anytime what year he was assassinated. Yeah. Oh, no, it, then, was, it was after, after. Oh, okay. Because you'll find a parallel with uh, John Kennedy, who was assassinated for not expanding the Vietnam War. He said, I'm not going to expand the Vietnam War. I'm not going to go invade Cuba. And shortly after that, he's, he's assassinated, uh, from what to Robert Kennedy says. Yeah, and CIA. Kennedy was also against, like, globalization and mm-hmm. stuff like mm-hmm. that, How about too, that? which yep. they also did. America first. Life. Yeah, Kennedy was a great guy. Uh-huh. Let me get to uh, – I guess you stayed a lot longer than you expected. And I have another guest at the top of the hour, so let's get Pianchi in here before, uh, uh, before Gene gets here. I'm going to talk airplanes. Pianchi, what do you well, think of all this? Go ahead. I finally got my number ported over. Oh, well, anyway, Japan did surrender. They surrendered when they signed the treaty on the USS Missouri. It wasn't about the because that was a no-no. Of the people, every man, woman, and child would have fought to the death. And the same thing with Spain. Spain uh, treaty was the Treaty of Paris. Oh, okay. so that's the way you do it. You defeat their army. They don't have anything else. Why are you going to go into the people don't have no defense? The army's gone. But the Treaty of Paris. Now, here's the question, though. Uh, and let's, let's refine Brianca, uh, excuse me, Brianna's question for next week. Was it unconditional surrender? So the Treaty of Veracruz, whatever, for Mexico, uh, was that unconditional surrender? I don't think so. I think there were conditions. And one of the conditions was in, that the land we the had, we're going to keep. the Treaty of Veracruz, the U.S. paid Mexico $15 million for the land. Originally, okay, so that's before a... the war started, they they offered them thirty million. They didn't want to take it. And it all began because Texas, the Republic of Texas, seceded from Mexico, just like the the, the Southern states seceded from the United States. Interesting. Okay. So, but that was conditional. That wasn't unconditional. See, it's unconditional surrender that I think is is the problem with World War One and World War Two. We absolutely had a surrender. Um, but let's talk about the Treaty of Paris. Was that conditional or unconditional? The end of the it Spanish was conditional upon the terms of the treaty. Okay. And the treaty, so that's, treaties right. have supreme as it listed in the U.S. Constitution. 
No, I know that. I'm not questioning it, but what I'm questioning is that we have Good to find Brianna, a plan to unconditional surrender. What I'm saying is we didn't have to go for unconditional. The conditional surrender would have been just fine. It's surrender, surrender. That's my point. Brianna, what do you think? So I think Japan was anxious to sign so that didn't the third I mean, big boom fall on them. I think it. I think conditional, unconditional is time, but also you got to remember, like, the American sentiment right at that time, you know, we suffered a lot during that time. The Mm. Japanese were brutal. And so, you know, kind of taking it to the next level of unconditional may have been, you know, something that they felt that was necessary because of how much they had suffered and how much Japan had hurt the country. It was conditional. It was conditional with Japan under the condition you have no more army. For a certain number of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's coming to bite us in the butt now. Well, let me ask you a different question. Uh, as far as China goes, do you think that uh, we should help Japan and South Korea uh, get nuclear weapons as a de- and Taiwan as a defense against China? Should we help them mm-hmm. get nuclear weapons? Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know. I mean, going back to, like, if we were to take George Washington's advice, it'd be no. Given the situation with China, given the fact that Bill because Clinton helped, helped North Korea remember, get nuclear weapons, right? And, and Barack Obama helped Iran get nuclear weapons. So it's like we're, we're giving our enemies, some of the worst people on the planet, nuclear weapons. Why would we not want to help our allies defend against Yeah, the and you have to remember that... Mm-hmm. You obviously don't want to give your enemies nuclear weapons, but you also got to remember that there's been a lot of shifts in history of who's your ally and who's your enemy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you kind of have to be careful with that, of, you know, who you're giving yeah. all your weapons to. Yeah, alliances um, switch around big because time. Well, look at China and Russia. Who, who did we fight in, five, in, in Korea? In five, ten years from now. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, in five, ten years from now, Britain can decide to be our enemy, and they're no longer <laughs> our ally. Not likely. And let's yeah. say we gave them nuclear weapons. You know, well, they already got them. It's just... got, they're building three new nuclear submarines right now. They've, the dreadnought class of submarine. They like the word dreadnought because it sounds really tough. Well, I'm saying like in general, mm-hmm. like just giving your enemy nuclear weapons to use mm-hmm. against you. But mm-hmm. I mean, obviously they're not our enemy right now. But I'm just saying because there's been a lot of shifts throughout history. Hmm. You know, the terminology for that is not permanent friends but permanent interests oh yeah that makes sense i mean alliances do come and go and they yeah, do change and in fact it's interesting here's another interesting question for you uh, brianna is that uh, we gave the marshall plan in other words millions of dollars to rebuild germany and japan but not russia our ally and they've never forgotten it but they were communists so they were bad Yet, yet Nazis, which are basically the same thing, you know, were okay to give a Marshall Plan to. Okay, you know, so this is uh, this is an interesting uh, thing of history. I'm surprised Marco hasn't said more. He's 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 out there. He's just not talking to us a whole lot. All right, we've got um, Gene coming on here in just a few minutes, and I've completely neglected my duty to explain the FAA mosaic rule. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of quickly go through that with Gene when he when he gets on here. Um, Brianna, you got anything else for us? This might be a good place to kind of hold up. So for someone that couldn't stay long, you've been here an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I, I'm just gonna have a, um, I can go we didn't even my get final. to your topic. Yeah. yeah. 
She's got it very good. I'd say she's probably better than 70% of the American adults. She's That's why she's there. on the show. Brianna's fabulous. That's why she's on the show. I mean, you know, and uh, I try never to think of, of her as a younger person. I mean, uh, Brianna, do you ever feel like I'm, I'm talking to you like, uh, like, you're, like you're not a full-fledged adult reporter? Um, do you ever, is there anything that, because uh, I might be doing this subconsciously. I don't think so. But as far as I'm concerned, you're a full adult reporter with all the adult responsibilities, and you're doing a fabulous job. So, um, yeah, it's good to have like conversations that are generally like on an equal level. Because sometimes people mm-hmm. will just disregard anything I say just because you know it's younger. It's like, oh, you're inexperienced, which is true. Like on some things where it's like I don't honestly know a lot. It makes sense, mm-hmm. but I well, do I... get waved off a lot because. I'm young. That's interesting. I'll tell you, quite honestly, it's because you sound young. You sound like about 12. And I don't mean that as an insult. <laughs> it's just you How sound really you? young. How old is Brianna? Do you want to reveal your age? It's up to you, Brianna. What grade are you in? Uh, I'm a senior. You're a senior? Yeah, and don't forget to watch those uh, documentaries and videos on those wars, especially uh, the wars with Russia and Germany. And they got some very good, and also World War II with Japan. They got some very good documentaries that's on today, and uh, it can teach a lot. It should be a major viewing, required viewing by all high schools, all grade schoolers too. Anyway, I checked. Are they on like YouTube and Canopy or things like that? They only they only YouTube. Yes, they are. Yeah. All right, we're going to okay. hold up here. Let's get your sign up, Brianna. You're welcome to stay, of course. And Pianki, you're going to stick around because we're going to talk airplanes. So this is going to be fun. Thanks, Brianna. This is Brianna Cannon with Government Inquiry on Action Radio. Goodbye. Action Radio. Part of the ADHD Radio Network. The ultimate free speech zone. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. At Action Radio, we don't report the news. We are the news. Every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take. That is Action Radio. Yeah, I've been sitting here for uh, two hours. I had to play something just to take a little bit of a break and stand up and stretch for a second. Um, I want to introduce a friend of mine, Gene Valentino, a fellow pilot. He's got his own plane, which I'm going to hopefully be up in at some point uh, here fairly soon. But I want to talk about the the FAA rule, general aviation in general. Uh, Pianchi's on the line too, Gene. He's a pilot also. And so as I try and get back into this, uh, there's, there's something that really incredible is happening. The government, we never say this on the show, the government's doing something right. Uh, this is really an amazing uh, thing that's happening. So let me introduce my friend, Gene Valentino. A little round of applause. <laughs> hey, Gene. What's going on? Good morning, on? Greg. How are you? I'm fine. Welcome back to Action Radio. I think the last time we talked on the air uh, was WBY, my, my, my favorite job for actually working for somebody else. <laughs> 
good for you. I've been following your broadcasts, and you're doing a great job. Good for you well, reaching you. out around the world now. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's very true. You know, we're in Belarus, uh, which is right above Ukraine, and I keep trying to get the Belarus folks to uh, use our Skype line. We have a Skype line at the show where anybody can call in. Uh, I just have to approve their account ahead of time, so I'm hoping to hear more international folks as the show grows. Our biggest audience is in England outside the United States. It's like about 5% of our audience is in England. And we've got Marco who listens in the Netherlands regularly and is on live chat. So he's typing in things right now. So you got a pretty good reach today. You know, from Australia well, hello, to Iceland. Marco too. We got an Icon <laughs> A5 we can talk about that would love to fly up in the Netherlands. Would that be the perfect place? Hey, Marco, this is, he only asks on live chat. So it's like I talk and he types in an answer. Uh, there must be, if I remember the Netherlands, there's a fair amount. Obviously, you've got the canals and things, but you've got a pretty good water system with the dikes and everything else. That might be the perfect place, you know, those straightaway canals and things for, for, for the Icon A5. Um, Gene, you should describe it. So for folks who don't know, let's, let's talk about your airplane first. So how, why that airplane? What can it do? Tell me the story. Almost 15 years now, the Icon A5 by uh, Kirk Hawkins, came out of uh, the military as an uh, F-18 fighter pilot, creates a company Mm -hmm. called Icon, and then begins the process of um, uh, a design, a design that went through 10 years of redesign. And uh, during that process, it became known as the light sport aircraft. The light sport aircraft was because generally it came in under 1,850 pounds of weight. The original weight uh, limitation was closer to 14 to 1,600 pounds. And the FAA, which I think ties into what you want to introduce, uh, Greg, as the mosaic. The mosaic mm-hmm. you can bring up. I'll let you. I'll let you take that. The the mosaic concept was really the genesis. Like you said, it's about the FAA government getting something right. Not all bureaucrats are rusty and dark, deep ops, black ops uh, oriented. Some of the bureaucrats are doing good things. In the in the bowels of the FAA, there are great people who've designed rules that respond to innovation and technology and yep. the market conditions of the world that are constantly changing and in this case it's a it's a light sport aircraft that becomes the transportation tool for more average citizens to to, to fly uh uh in uh, in airspaces that were designed and uh, for which rules were created going back 50 80 years ago and so what's happening at several levels of the FAA is that the rules are changing in the way you manage the trans uh, the transport of aircraft through the nation, and um, the rules are changing with who can be uh, physically considered a pilot at the other extreme, and the rules are changing with the device called the aircraft that has standardizations that are applying to the aircraft itself, and that's what's happening with the light sport aircraft industry. The Icon A5 came out of 14, 15 different revisions and uh, about, um, and I invested in this uh, aircraft uh, about 12 years ago, 14 years, I'm losing track of time here. And um, it, it saw so many revisions that by the time I got it, the horsepower had increased. The, air, the frame had uh, wingspan and, and length had changed a few inches. 
The landing gear had been retrofitted three or four times. And most recently, they put in the ADSB in and out and the uh, the uh, upgrades to the landing gear and the Garmin G3X, which is the uh, tied to the autopilot system. An autopilot system in what was called a light sport aircraft is quite unusual. And uh, the rules changed because it also introduced for the first time a ballistic parachute that uh, launches. I mean, it's truly an explosion if you pull it. That a parachute goes up, uh, in, uh, expands, and the canopy opens about 45, 50 feet above the aircraft and mm-hmm. floats the whole plane down to the earth um, in, a, uh, in a safe way. I've been trained to use it, but thank God no. I have never used it. <laughs> yeah, it's like ejecting. You know, who wants to eject from a perfectly good airplane? <laughs> yeah. you know, well, well yeah. here's a question I've always wondered about that. So, so I want people to sort of get an image here because we're we're on radio. That if you're flying a little airplane and all of a sudden something really horrible happens, um, and you the, the engine quits, there's, it's just you're in really bad space. Or I think actually I'm going to talk about bad weather in a second. But the idea is the plane becomes disabled, something really goes wrong, um, you know, turbulence, icing, who knows what. You pull this parachute. And ideally, the parachute opens up and you float down to earth and you don't, you know, it'll take care. It'll save your life. That's the whole point of this thing. Um, but I'm thinking, has there ever been a situation where a private pilot got caught in, in the clouds, which we call instrument meteorological conditions, which can be fatal often for private pilots who have no instrument training because they go by their feelings. No, they don't try instruments. They don't know how to handle it. Uh, and that's one of the biggest things of instrument training is learning how to, to not just trust the instruments, but uh, use them. And that is your airplane. Okay, well, you see on the attitude indicator or the artificial horizon for us older folks, that's the airplane. Okay, I don't care what you're feeling. I don't care if you think you're making a climbing left turn. What it says there, that's what's happening. And so when private pilots disregard that because they haven't been trained in that, you know, has anybody ever pulled a parachute in the clouds to safely float down as opposed to spinning or graveyard spiraling into the ground? Do you have any incidents of that? And is well, that a legal use know, of a parachute? In one of our other companies, we've um, um, pulled the parachute, but it was on a $3 million Cirrus aircraft, the SN50, oh. uh, single jet engine turbofan, uh, single pilot, part 135 aircraft, chartered service. We had to do that because um, the automation um, went bonkers and the pilot lost control of the aircraft. He simply... Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it yeah. happened at about 15, 1,800 feet, and it happened about oh, a year and a half ago. The the plane, the, the ballistic parachute went up, and mm-hmm. the entire aircraft glided, uh, uh, floated uh, down to the earth, ironically landed in one of a, a retention pond at the side of a industrial park. No one was injured, and the breeze uh, very softly pulled the aircraft to the shoreline. Yeah. <laughs> If there was a crash, if there was a, a situation to occur, you couldn't ask for a better scenario. Wow. <clears throat> However, soft landing. To, yeah. your, to your question, uh, in the Icon A5, <clears throat> excuse me, there is no, uh, there's no incident that has uh, been reported yet that shows that the, uh, whether in the clouds under IFR mm-hmm. or mechanical failure, that where a pilot has had to. Uh, uh, use, no, the, yeah. use the parachute. But if you're disoriented in the clouds, uh, I don't know if these things work when the plane's inverted. I mean, this is my first question. That might be a, that might be a problem. <laughs> so you might have to actually, you know, pull the power 
you know, uh, trim for a descent, get the plane, let the plane right itself, and then pull the ballistic parachute. Um, but for pilots that don't know, if they're caught in weather, that might be a, a scenario that might even be worth training for. I mean, I, well, I don't know about that. Uh, in an absolute last-ditch emergency, rather than going into a, a spiral or a spin like uh, uh, John Kennedy Jr. did uh, off Nantucket, it might be better to just pull the parachute and just let the airplane land itself. What do you think? Yeah, the the, the the when I was trained to use it in the Icon A5, um, uh-huh. the, the the rule was simply it is to be used when you cannot fly the plane. Oh, okay. So what does that mean? That means <laughs> that it can yeah. use when you feel when you the pilot feel that you are in unable to operate that aircraft. Uh-huh. That aircraft must uh, then the then the um, and there is no – if you're IFR, you've got the advantage of an autopilot. But as a VFR pilot, visual flight rules – That's what I'm talking about. Visual <laughs> pilot flying into – I've got an autopilot yeah. in the new aircraft right now anyway. So huh. technically mm. for me, based on my years of experience, I would uh, I would use the straight and level uh, override, and I would probably hold a direction and veer away from the front of a storm and wait yeah. for the clear with me to get yeah, go into lunch safe <laughs> We've all done yeah. that. You know, like, ah, the weather's bad ahead. What are you going to do? I tell my sister, the weather's bad ahead. What are you going to do? Well, I don't know. Let's go somewhere exactly. else. Exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, keep it real yeah. simple, right? Um, now, can um, – but you're instrument trained, though, right? You, do you have a – I'm sure you have an no, instrument. No, I'm not. I've, I've, oh, you're not. Yeah, but that's interesting. No, Greg, I'm, I'm a visual flight rule pilot, but huh. I've flown – so many years, I've uh, just my business activity and my other life experiences have never given right. me the chance to go full IFR. You need an instrument rating. Aircraft, mm-hmm. What? You need an instrument rating. It really is worth it. Yeah, uh, I the, do. <laughs> let me tell you something. Even in a small, in the Cessna 172, when I was instrument training students, <clears throat> excuse me, especially flying out of the San Francisco fog, there is nothing more beautiful than flying through the clouds. I mean, it is absolutely stunning. I mean, yeah, the views are great without the clouds, but when you come out, you kind of like cruise. Or one time I had, a, I had air traffic control clear us where we were actually sitting on the top layer. So we're like, we're like skimming the clouds. It was so cool. And the clouds are like racing over the wings. And, this is, you know, it was just an amazing experience. And then I said, we need clearance a thousand people. We, have, we need to be in the clouds for this flight. They're like, okay. So they cleared us down into them. But uh, if you fly between layers or if you get sunsets, you know, between layers of clouds, there's nothing more beautiful than that. It's just, it's like a whole new world. You need the instrument rating. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. You need one. Oh, yeah. I, I, I agree. <clears throat> Uh, so by the way, I, do, I used to teach it. <laughs> tell me, all right, all right. So mosaic. Well, I want to get. Huh, I want to finish up your airplane real quickly because you have a unique airplane. Yeah, yeah. It is iconic. Well, it does plane, things that a lot of plane, airplanes can't um, do. Go ahead. The reason the reason I I I bought this airplane instead of some of the others is because for me, the industry, the flying industry, and the long you know the exception is the long hauls, thousands of miles, transcontinental flights. But right. if eighty-five percent of the flights in the United States are under five hundred, six hundred miles, mm-hmm. and what that means is that you have smaller jaunts that need to have a more cost-effective way for people to hop around. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what's happened in the industry as a response to supply and demand and technology is these major hubs around the nation have morphed into a lot of secondary hubs. So the smaller secondary <clears throat> uncontrolled fields around the nation, some 2,500 of them, mm-hmm. um, all of a sudden are getting more activity because mm-hmm. pilots are hopping into the uh, into an outlying 
field, which ironically may be closer to their intended destination yeah, this is for a good lower thing, cost. This is a really good thing. Yeah. 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 So as a result, <clears throat> more people are flying, and therefore the FAA, to your first point, has modified rules to make it easier for people to fly. Now, yeah. I do recommend uh, a full certification under visual flight rules or as Greg has said, the instrument rating, uh, that is the way to go. But uh, this classification the FAA has to be careful of is called the light sport rating. And it's only daytime. It's only VFR. Uh It's um, no landing on water at nighttime, of course. It's just... You don't do that anyway, do you? You can't see the water at night. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's, uh, so, so that's what I get to. Gene's plane lands on the water, folks. It's got the the bottom. Let me do a quick, quick description. The bottom of his airplane is shaped like a boat, so it, it can land on the water. It has retractable gear, so it can land on the water, but it can land on the land. You just put the gear out, and you land like a normal airplane, right? It's got the engine way up high. It's got the wing up high, so they're out of the spray. The engine faces backwards. It's a pusher prop. It's Rotax, which means it can take car gasoline. Okay, it can run in rate. So that's like half the price of aviation gasoline. Um, you can take the windows off, the side windows off. It's like a, it's like a sports car. It's like your, your, oh. your water SUV, <laughs> you know, and this thing is yeah. just such a kick. I can't wait to fly. I, you know, you can even do search and rescue stuff with uh, the, you know, with our, our, our sheriffs, San Rosa County sheriffs. That may be something to do as well. But uh, yeah, it is such I a handy have... airplane. What? Yes. Yes, Greg. I have already. Uh, uh, the local people have. Uh... Uh, had search uh, search missions underway that I've been called on. You can get down low a few hundred feet or, or above the ground and do a high right. back turn safely mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. examine an area that uh, is tough to get to. By yeah, I want to get I want to get in on that. I want to get in on the rescue missions. I've always I was Civil Air Patrol in California, but all the old guys got all the missions, and they all happened during the week when I was working. So I, I want to look into that uh, as well as a bunch of other things. So this airplane is 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 it's called an amphibian which means it lands on water, lands on land. Uh, it's it's uh, after the initial price of it, you know, it, it costs less to operate than a traditional airplane because you've got this Rotax engine that's just phenomenal. Can you talk a bit about the Rotax? And then we'll get into the, the sport rule. Yeah, the Rotax, the, the Rotax uh, uh, 911 uh, IS is a 100-horsepower fuel-injected. Mm-hmm. So for pilots out there using your procedures on carburetor heat, uh, mm-hmm. that all goes away. It's all calibrated based on density, altitude, uh, temperature, and uh, altitude, uh, air pressure. You have um, a calibration that occurs in the carburetor that prevents the concern about carburetor icing, and therefore the the carburetor isn't choked from oxygen because mm-hmm. of icing. Uh, and as a result... That can it, shut your really engine down, by the way. <laughs> you can lose, I've, yeah, I've lost an engine. I, I sued on a lesson that did something stupid, and our carburetor iced up completely. We almost had to land at Hamilton Field with big Air Force Base, ex-Air Force Base in uh, in uh, uh, San Pablo Bay in, in the San Francisco Bay area. But we got the engine started again. <laughs> it was kind of funny, actually. I'll tell the story yeah. later. Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> but uh, back so, to... Anyway, uh, the, yeah. The, uh-huh. yeah, the um, the plane has actual... Uh, re- the the whole aircraft is made of carbon, right? And it's a carbon. That's another huge innovation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the belly that you were talking about earlier has a layer mm-hmm. or two of Kevlar underneath oh, the, the carbon. So, so literally, if you have a major <laughs> problem when you were coming in on a runway at a yeah. field, an asphalt mm-hmm. field, and you ran into trouble, you would simply um, 
uh, skid your way along the grass or the asphalt, and um, you got a hell of a re- repair bill ahead of you. But um, yeah, but you, you save the airplane. You, uh, you and, save and the people in it. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Do you have what, what's the emergency gear procedure? How do you, how do you get? Is it like a, a handle, a gravity thing? They have a, a CO2 thing, or, or how do you get the gear down in an emergency if the, the, the motor doesn't work? Well, the mo- you, you, if the motor doesn't work, it obviously depending on altitude, the new ADSB in and out, and the Garmin G3X, it's so, so it's assisting the VFR pilot. You just hit the nearest button on your on your control panel, and it starts lighting up the nearest aircraft uh, from you. You have a memorized certain uh, performance characteristics of the aircraft. One of which is a glide ratio so you i know my aircraft with no engine <clears throat> has a 10 to 1 glide ratio so mm-hmm. i do the, the math i go can go 10 feet forward for every foot i drop mm-hmm. which means i'm going to determine if that nearest airport that just popped up on my screen is mm-hmm. within that glide ratio if it is i'll take it i'll go in hot meaning no flaps and no gear down that that's drag so i don't need drag exposed mm-hmm. to slow me down and drop me faster i want to make sure i can get to the runway so when i get to the runway or near the runway i then make an, a, a determination about maybe gear well gear down first and then determine if i can make the runway from there and whether flaps would be needed but yeah. uh uh it, it, so i was just it, asking how you get the gear down do you do you crank it down do you uh uh, does it just gravity fall? If you had to lower the gear in an emergency, what's your what's the procedure on the A5? It's, it's all electronic and uh, hydraulic. Oh. There's no crank. It goes okay. um, it goes straight out on its own, and uh, it has two backup electrical systems in it to okay. uh, to address the uh, mm-hmm. fault or potential fault. It's an interesting. Uh, uh, or you land on water. Uh, <laughs> You've got the option of landing on yeah. water too. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, when you're up there, yeah, when you're up there flying around, there's a lot more water than there is land, especially well, see, this, in this, this area. Perfect, yeah, this is a perfect plane for Florida. So Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, Alaska are great places for this airplane. Um, okay, let's let's get, let's get to now that we've got that one. But the, the typical airplane, and this is what's so fascinating, carbon I think is half the weight of aircraft aluminum, because you got planes that you got two place airplanes that are coming in. You know, typical 172 weighs what 2,000 pounds. Well, now you've got less than 1,000 pounds for a carbon airplane that carries four people um, with the same horsepower. You know, it's going to go twice as fast. So we've got airplanes now that weigh half as much that go twice as fast. We're talking 200 knots instead of 100. Um, they burn less fuel because they are lighter, so it takes less horsepower to move them, you know, at a given airspeed. Um, the drag is less because they're a lot smoother. Carbon fiber is much easier, I guess, to form than aircraft aluminum uh, because they're now what we call retractable gear. In other words, the gear comes up into the airplane. You don't have the struts hanging out. You don't have the stuff. You know, all this other junk that's out there. So they're faster. So, so the, this explosion in airplanes is coming. And what Jim was talking about earlier is the fact that uh, the FAA, for some reason, we should talk about the sport pilot certificate. First, they, they, they created a new pilot certificate that was easier than the private because they wanted more people to fly. So, again, the FAA is, is probably one of the, the lesser political agencies as opposed to like the EPA or some of the other ones out there. Um, but the FAA is, and I've met wonderful FAA people. Uh, I used to talk to my FAA inspector all the time about policies, about things that were going on and stuff. He used to meet with our flying school. So we, we all agree with the FAA. FAA was not a problem. 
Uh, so we had a lot of respect for them. But uh, they wanted to make it easier to get more people flying because aviation was having a problem. It's too expensive is one of the biggest. We can talk about that. So then they also had this light sport category of airplanes. So they, they regulate the pilots. They made an easier pilot certificate than the private. And they regulate the airplanes. They made uh, an easier category to learn in, the light sport aircraft. And as Gene was talking about, 1,200 pounds, 120 knot maximum airspeed, you know, uh, one passenger only, 10,000 feet or below, no night, three miles visibility, I think is a standard thing. Um, and then the, and it was very restrictive. And Europe, Europe beat the pants off us because they started, especially this, this plane, the VL3, which I absolutely love, it's out of Czechoslovakia. So the Europeans have a different rule. They don't have a speed restriction, okay? They don't have uh, a bunch of, they don't have a restriction on retractable gear or a constant speed prop, which I'll explain in a second. So in other words, these planes were basically high performance airplanes for half the weight of our low performance airplanes, <laughs> you know? So, but we couldn't bring them in because our rule, the old rule, said that these planes wouldn't fit the light sport category of aircraft. So the solution was to change the light sport category. They've, they've, I don't know, the speed, the, the top speed is still regulated by stall speed. I'll explain that later too. Um, the weight is not really a factor as much because these things weigh half as much being carbon. Uh, they've got Rotax engines, so you've got the same 150 horsepower as a Cessna 172 pushing half the weight airplane, and it uses car gas. So that's a lower cost. So all these different things, and because they're cleaner, the gear goes up, and they have what's called a constant speed prop, so you can adjust the pitch of the blade. So you have a, 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 a pitch that, that's narrower to the air on takeoff, you know, a little, little wider on, on climb out, and wider still on cruise. That's the difference. So you have a bigger, like non-aviation terms, bigger pitch on cruise, you know, a little bit less of a pitch, so it can turn, the prop turns faster on climb out, and the fastest, uh, the least resistance to the air, the thinnest pitch uh, is on takeoff. So basically you've got three settings, you know, and you've got two settings for gear, up and down. So the idea, and I wrote about this in my book back in, in 19, uh, when did I write my book? It's 30 years ago, 92. So I wrote my book in 92 saying that we should start teaching pilots on airplanes that were retractable gear, retractable gear and constant speed from the very first day. Because that's what they're going to fly with their family. They're going to fly the trainers. Nobody flies trainers once they get out of training. So why would you not spend a little bit of extra time? That way they don't have to do a familiarization and learn a completely new airplane. So this to me is all fascinating that they're actually doing what I predicted 30 years ago. It's about time. Uh, and these new airplanes, yeah. they've changed. The, the, so tell me about what's the latest on the sport pilot certificate? How is that different from the private? Because I've forgotten. It's been a while. Yeah, the, the sport pilot certificate, um, I do not have. I have the full certificate as if I was a VFR pilot and got it over 30 years ago. So you got a private, you got a private pilot. I, and that's what I would recommend. I do, I do not think one should be compromising their uh, level of training and experience to fly even in a light sport aircraft. It's not only about the sophistication of your aircraft, but it's about the other aircraft around you and how mm -hmm. you perform within a community of other aircraft going in and out of airports. So I believe in the full certification process. However, uh, the light sport aircraft uh, also um, in the early days when it started uh, mitigated uh, health issues. Some of the health issues with folks having bypass surgery, being up at uh, 60 years of age, uh, the mar marginal health situations <clears throat> that could um, disqualify you under the, uh, under FA, under the older FAA standards now mm -hmm. qualify uh, uh, because of 
of the nature of the aircraft, uh, the parachute, the, um, the autopilot capability, all of the extra features uh, are that um, assist you in flying the aircraft. It's for those of you who have flown, uh, who have flown listen to me, uh, for those of you who have driven in a Tesla uh, and put the Tesla on cruise or literally autopilot, it's, it's a psychological cultural change when you're going around corners and the car navigates corners. <laughs> I've never speed, done that. That's, yeah, that's uh, going through yeah. intersections. I'm, I'm, I tested it, but I'm not comfortable with it, but I tested it. And, uh, I can watch the, I can watch the car do its thing. And frankly, it does it pretty well, but, um, it's this sort of innovation in the younger, in the younger talent coming into the FAA that uh-huh. is more, um, uh, reflective of the future of aviation. That's and interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, that's a really good yeah, point. You know, as the older guys retire, yeah. Exactly. You know, I, so hold, hold yeah, on a second, uh, Gene, just a second. Pianki, you want to get a comment in here? Because you know, like I say, you're a pilot too, so feel free. Well, you, I'm teaching my grandson. He's not ready to get into it because he's doing other stuff. But I'm going to teach him the old way. I'm going to teach him start him off on simulator with steam gauges and uh, the old way because you give up so much. And you, you're putting so much, like the gentleman said, when he was testing the Tesla, you, you, you give up too much that you could need at some point in time when you start getting into these innovations all of a sudden. And uh, the sport, yeah. yeah, in the sport, I mean, I had a friend that done a gyrocopter with a Volkswagen engine on the back of it. I wouldn't ride <laughs> in that thing for nothing. But, uh, yeah. you know, that was his license as a sport did apply to that at that time. But uh, I want to go for the real thing, I think. Yeah. A couple really good points Pianchi's making. One is that the old gauges, uh, it's like learning a stick shift before you learn to drive an automatic. Um, I train pilots to, to navigate. I used to cover, I take a jacket, cover up all the instruments. Well, or, or we had those little suction cup things. But uh, we did take, an old instructor did this to me. We had to take off with a, a jacket over the instruments. Couldn't tell. Didn't have airspeed, didn't have anything. Then we get up at altitude. But I would cover up everything on a cross-country flight except the compass. And, well, maybe the altimeter. So we didn't want to get too far off, off altitude. I said, you're going to fly back on the compass. It's bouncing around. <laughs> you know. So, so I, I taught my folks, you know, when everything else fails, you know, you've got your altimeter, your compass, and your, uh, you know, needle and ball. And that, that's all you really need to fly visually and, and a good chart and where you can go. There's something to be said for learning uh, old stuff. The people, the, the, the new pilots are great on innovation. But, Gene, how many of them know glass cockpits and wouldn't know what to do if the, the computer failed? Well, that's what I fear happened on our SF-50 under the Cirrus aircraft. The computer oh. did fail, and uh-huh. um, uh, there were some backup procedures uh, that got fried. So he pulled the parachute and saved the, his life, and um, uh, thank God didn't hit anybody coming down. But the, what the, your, uh, you guys are saying is absolutely true. When I'm in school... I want to learn the old mathematical tables. I don't want to be having someone put a computer in my hand to figure out math and problems. Uh, yeah. I want to I want to know what the the formulas were behind it that be, that made it um that that came to that answer. And the same applies to what you guys are saying too. It's um, yeah. it, it, you you want to learn the old. That's why I agree a full VFR 
rating is required for light sport. I actually I agree I with you on really... that. You can fly a light sport aircraft on a private pilot certificate. So one of the biggest problems is the airspace. You can't go into busier airports. You can't go into Class D or certainly not A or you know certainly not, uh, C or B. But there's there's a lot of airports you can't land on with a sport pilot certificate because you're simply not well, certified to do it. So that's a that's problem. Correct. So if you, if you're, so if you have a private, you can yeah go ahead. Yeah, you you mentioned. I apologize. Is a okay. slight delay. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the oh, fact no. we, is we that do when that you get into here. Class Bravo airspace, <laughs> when you get into Class Bravo airspace, you've got airliners coming in behind you. You have a minimum speed requirement on final approach mm-hmm. that you better be able to maintain because mm-hmm. you'll have you'll have a Delta airline flight behind you coming in at 150, 160 miles an hour. And you'll be uh, you'll be part of his intake manifold into one of his engines if you don't move along quickly. And these new sport airplanes are faster though because they do 200 knots. Not well, the miles now hours, they are well months. under the light yeah. sport standard here in the states. That's not so. What you talked about in Europe is yeah. correct, and I'm right. glad to hear. Uh, mm-hmm. you, I learned it for the first time with what you said this morning. Uh, mm-hmm. They're taking the limitation on the light sport up to 3,000 pounds, but they're also making adjustments in weight and balance and engine. Yep. So the light sport definition is expanding, but so is the speed of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And if we get this aircraft up to 140, 160, 180 knots in the light sport category, you know, uh, it, the the pilot is different. The training is different. It's not from 20 years ago. Learn the old school, yes, but the new technology today opens the doors for more mm-hmm. of us having an opportunity to yep. traverse. I was over, I had to get to Panama City the other day. Uh-huh. Uh, I got there in 50 minutes. Driving there is, uh, is uh, about three hours. And uh, so it mm. was just perfect use of my time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and and you're and this is the A five. It's not that fast an airplane. So if you do, if you said no. before, let's, let's let's do a little little quick math here. Uh, five hundred mile trip, typical trip. This thing does two. A typical light, a good light sport aircraft is going to do two hundred miles an hour. That's two and a half hours, maybe three hours with climb out and descent and all that kind of stuff. Let's just say so three hours to to fly five hundred miles, which is the typical airline trip. So you don't have to go through security. You don't have to put your shoes on a counter. <laughs> you don't have to wait for the delays. You don't have to wait for your baggage at the other. You don't have all the – so flying, the airline flight itself is actually pretty quick. It's everything else that takes time, getting to the airport, right. traffic, all that kind of stuff. So if you're doing a 500-mile trip in an airliner, you've got to get up, get to the airport, do security at the other end, pick up your bags, you know, get your cab, get your rental car, and away you go. It takes a lot of time at a busy airport. But if you have a, a light sport aircraft that does 200 knots, and the, or, or just say miles an hour, keep it simple for everybody. So you have a 200 mile an hour flight. So you get up, you drive, you do a half hour pre-flight. You know, you've already done your pre-flight planning the night before. You get ready. The weather's good. You've decided to go. You go. You know, you're off the ground in, you know, half an hour to an hour <laughs> at the most. Right? But you know what? Yeah, uh... sure. hold, hold on a second, Pianki. Let me just finish this thing. So then, so then you fly. You get your two and a half hours flight time. We'll say three hours. All right? And at the other end, yeah, you know, you go to your FBO. You pick up your rental car and off you go. So you're talking about probably about the same amount of time or less than an airliner, which does 500 miles an hour, and yet you're doing 200 miles an hour, but you're saving so much time at either end, plus you have the convenience of going right to your smaller airport, 2,500 airports available as opposed to the typical, what's it, 30 major airports in the United States right now? Most of the airlines go to 30 yeah. airports. Yeah. And Class so, Bravo uh, airports is about 30. Okay, yeah. So that's not a lot of airports. And the airliners pretty much have to go to the bigger airports because they need the runways. Pianki, you were going to say something. 
Well, if you land in one of the Bravo airports, they don't want you there if you're 172. You can tell them But if you can fly in a yeah, that's I'll right. Tell you, I'll, I'll tell you a story to Oakland. I was in Oakland training in Cessna 310s. And uh, it was a really congested day. And Tower says, can you make, uh, what, what's your best speed to, uh, on approach? And that we were training, it was instrument training. I think, no, I, actually, we had instrument conditions. I said, oh, I'll give you 150 knot approach. How's that? And the guy's like, yeah, hey, go for it. <laughs> so I'd never done this before. So we literally made up, I had a really good student. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done this. So instead of dropping the gear at, uh, at the outer marker, we actually kept it in. I put the nose down. No flap, no nothing. We, just, we flew the approach at 150 knots. And as we get to closer and closer, like middle marker, I started, you know, slowing it down. But the, the air traffic control, Oakland Airport, they couldn't believe it. They were laughing. They said, I think we've never seen anybody do that. I said, that's okay. I've never done it before either. They're cracking up, right? And the ghost is like, hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate the help. <laughs> so, you know, we literally made up a procedure. But it was actually was the most stable approach I'd ever flown. So you got 310 and 150 yeah. knots on, you know, approaching. We just trimmed it for the descent. And we kept, you know, bringing the power back as we got lower. And uh, it was great. It's one of the best approaches yeah, I've ever but flown. you know, Greg, uh-huh. starting out, how many people can afford a 310? You're talking about people can probably afford $50,000. Well, <laughs> they're know, cheaper now. Explain. But the maintenance is horrendous. Yeah, on a, on a, on a, well, on a twin engine. One. Yeah, a piston airplane. Nah. I'm waiting for the twin engine Rotax engines. That's going to be fun when those things come. Oh, yeah, that's. That's out there now. My my, you mentioned the uh, Rotax before, and in the uh-huh. Icon, it's burning about three and a half, four gallons an hour, Nothing. and uh, it's double L one hundred Avgas or high test. So um, uh, I shoot, and high test is actually better, ninety three octane or better, uh, uh-huh. uh, ethanol free. Uh, you put that in the aircraft, you're saving your plugs and. Uh, hmm. Where and well, where? Really? So uh, I never really. Ethanol. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. Ethanol free and um, mm-hmm. uh, 93 octane on a, a Rotax engine. Boy, you're extending the life of that that engine nicely. So 93 octane is, is sufficient because aviation is usually 100 100 low lead. So so 93 is not that far. It's not that. It's, it's different, but it's not different enough. So you don't need the extra you know, resistance to detonation, as they say. So, so, and how low is probably, it's better than car gas. No, that is car gas. No, this, this plane can take car gas. That's what I'm saying. It can take regular car, 93 octane, uh, ethanol free, which you can buy here at the gas stations. So Gene, do you just go to a local gas station, fill up a gas can and fuel the, the, well, two miles down the street, I load up a 15 gallon container, roll it onto the back of my pickup and, Roll it back into the hangar. <laughs> yeah. Now, are you are you one of these guys the that uh, do you, uh, you don't have to reveal this, but are you one of these guys that has you know a driveway that leads right to the water? Can you just put your airplane out of the garage and just go right into the canal? You don't have to. Yeah. Tell well, <laughs> sorta. Of, I have a hangar which rolls straight into the water. I have a okay. ramp in my right. backyard that goes straight into the Perdido Bay, and oh, so it. my runway. Another thing too regarding weight and balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got 15 miles in one direction, 30 miles in another direction, on my uh, a waterway in my backyard. So I That's just good decide runway. which way the wind is. My runway <laughs> yeah. is uh, headwind into the wind. So mm-hmm. I've got if I'm o- I'm not overweight, but if I was overweight, I've got a lot of forgiveness in the water to right. get this plane up to speed to rotate to get off the water. Uh, you don't have that on land. You've got a fixed runway. And you yeah. better make sure you're on your weight and balance and you're complying. 
Well, plus the golf course at the end of the runway. By the way, we love golf courses at the end of runways, folks. It makes perfect land. Well, not perfect, but it's, it's better than a housing development for, for, for if there's an efficiency. So uh, that's why golf courses Just are there. Stay at it. Just stay out oh, of the sand trap. Well, listen, I, I, we used to have a golf course in the Concord where I, where I taught. And in one of the runways, uh, it was like one left was like directly in line with the driving range. Everyone said, why we get hit with a golf ball? <laughs> it was really funny. It was an enormous bang <laughs> against the aluminum skin. It's like incoming. My sister said, what was that? This is a golf ball. Are they shooting at us? No, this is, this is the driving range. It's okay. We're used to it. <laughs> a little dancing. It was pretty funny. Anyway, um, let's get back to the rule here. As I was going to go over this ahead of time, but uh, Brianna had some extra time. Uh, and so we, I just kept her on because it's more fun to talk to people than read stuff. But the biggest difference is, as we've talked about, uh, they're opening up the category. They're going to make airplanes. They're not going to have the same speed requirements. It's going to be the, based on stall speed. That's the speed where the airplane loses lift and the nose drops. Okay, it's just I'll keep it simple for our non-aviation people. There's more to it than that. Oh, another thing to the A5 has is an angle of attack indicator. This is something I called for back in 1992 in my book, that all airplanes should have an angle of attack indicator. What that does for the non-aviation folks, the airplane flies slightly higher in relation to the air it's flying into. That's called the angle of attack. If that angle gets too steep, if the air meets the wing at too high an angle, it can't get over the top of it, and that's what we call a stall. Pilots have had to live without angle of attack indicators forever until they get military jets or airliners. Gene, do you use that all the time, that angle of attack indicator? It is absolutely a godsend, and okay. it's better than a stall speed indicator, and it's quite accurate, and it, <clears throat> it helps me on tighter maneuvers. Mm-hmm. I just needle moves from the green and the white, which is the good place to be, to a yellow range mm-hmm. to the red range, and it it it, it keeps you away from the stalling. Uh, and the most significant you know, threat would be in a high angle of attack in a banked turn mm-hmm. at low altitude. So you've yep, got close to the ground. Careful, but yep. But uh, if I see it move toward yellow, I throw that power in and get. Get me juiced up. I can stay in the same position mm-hmm. or, or the same configuration, but just add the power back in to keep me safe. Yeah. Well, it's actually, if I remember, there's probably three things you could do. You could either reduce the bank slightly. That would lower the angle. You could drop the nose slightly. That would do it. Um, or you could add power. And all those things are going to help you, um, you know, get out of a stalling situation. Now, just to let folks know what a stall means is that the nose is going to drop, you're going to lose lift, and you're going to need a certain amount of altitude to recover. A lot of pilots don't recognize that. And if they're doing it in a, in a tight turn close to the ground, they can go into what's called a stall spin because they don't recognize the stall and that pilots die. That's one of the more common ways that people have an accident. Why they didn't have angle of attack indicators since the 40s, I have no idea. It makes no sense to me. So they give us these little warning horns, and they put a couple lines on the airspeed indicator, and you're supposed to be able to tell while you're watching the ground you know, and watching other airplanes and listening to the tower, you're supposed to be able to watch this little airspeed indicator? Yeah, I don't think yeah. so. And Greg, uh, Greg that's, why, yes, sir. that's why Go the FAA is being so forgiving mm-hmm. on the expansion of the rule that you're presenting. Uh, you've got the angle of attack. You've got the parachute. You've mm-hmm. got other um, ADSB in and out, which means I never in these standards of aircraft was able to see other aircraft around me. What's ADSB? I, I thought that was like a ballistic ADSB. pirate thing. It's not. What is ADSB? It, 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 ADSB is a term, <clears throat> the acronym of which means that you're sending 
information to the tower of a big airport near you, and they see you as a blip on your screen. It's done through the transponder. The other oh. route is the other route is the uh, when they say ADSB in and out. It also I get a, a reading on my on my uh, screen of other aircraft around me. So instead of it being transmitted to just the tower of a controlled field, it's now uh-huh. satellite-based, and I'm reading oh. other aircraft around me. So it's like a little aircraft so radar. Me, so you, you can it's do ATC? my own radar. It's better than the radar because it's not, just, it's not just in a certain uh, uh, cone ahead of me. It's right. in uh, all around 60 degrees around me. It's really situational awareness. This is what we used to try and yes. teach was situational awareness. Now, in the old days, you had to visualize where the airplanes were based on where they were calling in from. But as everybody knows, that pilots don't do that. And when they fly into fields That's without a control tower, they don't do it even more. <laughs> All they do is call in their position, but they're not listening for anybody else. And I used to have to train students. I said, so where was that airplane that just called in from? Well, I don't know. Well, they just called in. Aren't you listening? You know, and I, this is my advanced students. I wouldn't do this with beginners, obviously. But uh, you had to build that sense of you have to listen to the other airplanes. I said, I want a mental picture in your head of exactly where every airplane at this airfield is. Where are they and where are you? And if somebody's calling in, like I had a, a twin baron once call in on a, on a straight-in final. And he thought he had right away because he was coming straight in. It's like, no, dude, you're supposed to fly the pattern. So we're flying in our little, you know, Cessna 172, 150, whichever. And I said, that plane, I said, here's, let, let's think ahead. You've got a Baron coming on a final. That's a fast airplane. It's a twin airplane. They're not going to see us. What are you going to do? And so, uh, I don't know, because <laughs> these typical response, right? I said, well, should we extend our downwind? Should we watch and see where they are? Should we wait till we have a visual identification on this airplane? Should we call ahead and say, no, we're turning base now to final. We're ahead of you and claim it. What should we do? <laughs> you know, but those are the things that pilots don't think about. But you've got to think about that because airplanes yeah, are different speeds. Uh, but- yeah. The key word the key word you used was situational awareness. You uh-huh. you are always aware of the circumstances. And oh, I'll just land on the water. Well, wait a minute. Is <laughs> it a, a, a is it a, a freshwater lake in the outskirts of Alabama that may have stumps and tree tree stumps six inches below the water level? Uh, is that on your radar? Hell out of your... Can you see no, that? Yeah, no, about... No, I'm talking about the. Um, I'm talking oh, about the the aircraft in general being in, in situational awareness. When oh, you're I see coming you're over, okay, the, right. Coming yeah. over the top of water, the water mm-hmm. looks glassy and clear and capable of landing, but it's there could be all sorts of obstructions just inches under the water's edge. Yeah. Pianki, you had a comment? I mentioned crocodiles, too, down in Alabama. <laughs> Alligators, yeah. that's okay. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, here's I, the thing. I I'll think what I'm trying to do yeah. is make flying as easy as driving a car, and I don't think it'll ever get that way. And I think that there's mm. a, there can be a possibility of messing things up. You know, it's just so much more complication than what you have in driving an automobile. If I had someone that I love, I'm going to teach them the old way and let them progress into the, the new situations. And by the way, I think some of those garments will let you know when you have traffic, uh, traffic at four o'clock, three o'clock, so on, so on, so on. It would announce that's it. right. 
See, this is amazing, this ADSB thing. So in that scenario with the Baron coming on a long final of a guy who's cheating because he thinks he has a fast airplane, we'd see him on, on the radar and say, uh, okay, well, here's our speed, here's their speed. Who's going to get theirs? Can we turn and clear You know, if they're not watching what's going on? So th- that's, that's amazing. Yeah, you appear, um, you, uh-huh. you appear in the center of a 360-degree of a circle um, mm-hmm. and see things in front of you, behind you, all around you. And at different elevations, it even tells you. Does it give the elevation? Well, yeah, it says if it's plus seven, that means it's plus 700 feet Feet. above me. And climbing, if it's minus seven, he's um, 700 feet below me. And um, but he's coming straight at me on the old-fashioned radar, and mm-hmm. you would normally be panicked if you saw him coming straight at you. Well, if he's a thousand feet above me, I have no problem. Yeah, who and, cares? Um, yeah, yeah. But huh. but but it's the te- so the point is the technology is morphing, and right. more is being able to be um, considered, uh, uh, which opens the door for other people to be able to jump into the business. However, I do agree you need to have some good training to understand uh, uh, these issues in case some of your equipment fails. It's, yeah. um, it's a new time. It's a new changing yeah. time. I love it. Do you think we should uh, maybe the FAA should consider abolishing the sport pilot pilot category and just have everybody get a private and just leave this light sport category of airplanes so that uh, they'll get no, that advanced I, training? I, yeah, I don't, I don't think you need to abolish it. I just need, I just think that they need to get their definitions in place okay. between one and the other. Because here's why. Mm-hmm. You have the uh, advent of two new things, EVTOLs, which we haven't talked about, electric mm-hmm. vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And mm-hmm. the drone of a EVTOL is a drone, which has rules unto itself up to four or 500 feet. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, the world, uh, we've got folks uh, flying these drones around and, and can cause serious damage to commercial aircraft and, yeah. and light sport aircraft. If well, they, describe, uh, them. Des- describe a personal drone and, and tell folks what that's all about, what's actually happening with that. I'm curious, too. A per- the EVITOL or the drone? The EVITOL. The, drone, the standard drone is like a CJI. It's, I have a drone myself. It's the size of a of a book and it has about three or four propellers on it. It has a, yeah, uh, but you don't ride him back. <laughs> That's like no, a, no, like no. A hobby this aircraft, a, right. This is what, yeah. the, this is what they use to survey with cameras and right. intrude on your privacy. And, and those can be and dangerous. Those are the aerial but, uh, shots you see on the news that are um, looking at the border from 500 feet and everyone's right. crossing the river. Those are small drones. The big drones, are EVITOL, Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing Aircraft. And there's uh-huh. a bunch of um, com- uh, up-and-coming companies in, in the United States and elsewhere in yep. the world yep. that are actually using battery-powered propellers like helicopters, uh, five or six of them on the, on the aircraft to mm-hmm. hold four to six people. And Uh-oh. the battery life gets you about 100 miles away uh, on a, a short excursion. And what's happening is there's a new technology. This technology might be used, for example, when an aircraft lands in an airport, the EVITOL over in the uh, you know, general aviation area of, can actually pick up the passenger coming off a commercial liner and mm-hmm. uh, transport him or her uh, 40 to 60 miles away to a, 
hunting camp to a resort to a hotel. In fact, hotel some rooftop, hotels yeah. are <laughs> the roofs of their hotels to yeah. make the roofs more uh, structured so the uh, EBITAL can land on the roof of the hotel, oh, transfer wow. the passenger from the airport to the hotel directly without using Uber. <laughs> Now this is fascinating to me because we're, yeah, if you, if you folks can imagine a regular drone with four propellers, let's double. Let's say it has eight propellers, and it's got two controls, you know, throttle and uh, I guess direction. I'm not sure how the things actually fly, but there's no there's no wings, there's no tail. They don't glide well. <laughs> you know, when the, the propellers quit, I don't know what they're supposed to do because it's not like a like a an auto rotating helicopter blade that. Uh, well, maybe you can. I don't know if they can do that. But the thing is, you've got people that aren't. Now, what's the license to operate one of these things? Or is there a license to operate one of these things? Does it come under licensed aircraft? No, well, not directly. It's a category unto itself. That's uh-huh. also being set up by the FAA now. Huh. And um, this category is uh, takes into account. Now, the beauty is, is this thing will crank up to 150 miles an hour oh, uh, and cruise with, um, with, with your goggles. With, well, you're in the fresh air, Gene. It's like the weather. If it rains, no, it's no, going to get wet. It's an enclosed it's oh, it is closed a shell. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking of the personal it, it ones, the one-person ones. Four to okay. six people. Four to six, wow. That's going to be a big well, battery. They will, become the thing. they will become the future. You know, FAA is going to have to figure vector, vectors of space and altitude and directions for them. It's just like a major highway and you have your side streets. But that will become the thing of the future. Yeah, below yes, 700 indeed. feet. Yeah. Now, can they glide? Do they have a ballistic parachute? I mean, what's their safety uh, equipment? There is um, there is one manufacturer that's looking at a ballistic parachute option, but uh-huh. um, there is no glide. I mean, there's four, five, seven independent little electric motors running this thing. Does it have a backup battery or something? You know, that'll just well, land back- you or something? Well, no, there's no... Uh, <laughs> you're... <laughs> You're you're I mean, in just, uh, we're in you know research me. and development right now, you know. <laughs> this is hysterical. Be careful what yeah, you but, invest in. Yeah, I don't want a bunch of bugs flying around up there. They should limit them to like you know 200 feet or 250 feet and keep them low, <laughs> keep, keep them away from the rest of us. But um, I think we sort of talked about this peripherally. But the, the really good thing that the gene was mentioning is that pilot you know training is is better. The equipment is better. They're more open to this. That the pilots learn to fly faster airplanes earlier in their training. They've got more autopilot capability, more safety capability. Um, the ballistic parachutes. Oh, is there a transponder code? You don't have to tell me what the number is. But is there a transponder code if you pull a ballistic parachute? Do you squawk something? The ATC air traffic control knows. Up, oh, he's on a parachute. He's descending. Clear the. Well, traffic. when you do hit. In, in the in the aircraft, when you pull uh, when you pull the uh, um, the parachute, it mm-hmm. squawks the emergency frequency automatically seven seven zero zero. Right. Okay. So that's that takes care. Of, and of course, you're going to be declaring an emergency anyway. Otherwise, why would you do it? Um, we've got about seven eight minutes left. I want to go over this rule really briefly just to let you know. But what the overall what the FAA has said is that uh, so just here's the overview. Since the 2004 rule. The light sport category aircraft have shown a lower accident rate than experimental amateur built airplanes. Well, let me just stop right there for a second. This is really important. I think this is what the, part of the strategy with the FAA. They want to get certified airplanes. They don't want people building airplanes. And quite frankly, I want to be able to buy a Glass Air 3 or I want to be able to buy a turbo, you know, um, one of those planes, the, the, the ones that had the turbine engines, or I want to get a Viper Jet Mark II. I don't want to have to build it. 
Okay. I am not qualified to build airplanes. I know that. So I hope to be filthy rich so I can actually buy one of these things uh, and, and, and play with it and have fun. That's the whole point. But I think one of the dangers was that if you have, you know, you know, Fred and Joe, you know, building an, an airplane, they're not qualified. They don't have the skills. I'd much rather have a factory airplane. And if they can produce these things as factory airplanes instead of this ridiculous experimental rule, I think the airplanes will be safer. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And the light sport category moving more towards carbon fiber is a very difficult product for a huh. amateur to build and to uh, put together on his own. It's um, it's a yeah. higher standard. I, I support that. Look, I'm, I consider myself a good pilot, and I'm pretty good mm-hmm. at what I do in my life. But uh, you're not going to get me building an aircraft. No, I don't. I don't even do. Gene, I don't even do oil changes on my car. <laughs> you know, I'm, <laughs> I want a mechanic to look at it and make sure that I'm, I haven't forgotten something. Yeah. Um, here's another part of the overall. It says the FAA considers that the successful safety record of light sport air, category aircraft validate certification requirements established in the 2004 final rule and provide support for expanding the scope of certification for light sport aircraft and operations. As a result, the FAA identified this proposed rule as an opportunity to expand the 2004 rule to include a wider variety of aircraft, we talked about that, increase performance, we talked about that, and increase operating privileges, we talked about that, to extend the safety benefits to more aircraft. The FAA intends for these expansions to increase safety by encouraging aircraft owners who may be deciding between an experimental aircraft, which we just talked about, or a light sport category aircraft to choose an aircraft higher on the safety continuum and therefore meet the higher aircraft certification requirements. So they've they've, they've actually, it looks like the FAA took, instead of having the aircraft meet their ridiculous requirements, they've actually had the requirements meet the new category of airplanes. They've actually adapted the requirements to include these beautiful new high-performance, retractable gear, constant speed prop, carbon fiber, Rotax engine-powered airplanes. I think this is brilliant. Yeah. You just hit the difference between the FAA as an agency of government from other. Their decision-making in this rule change is Mm -hmm. directly related to what they refer to as epistemic data. The data is proven and factual, epistemic. Okay. And it Hmm. means that they have not taken an emotional position for or against it's just the facts baby and those facts allowed them to broaden the rules in the light sport category on several levels the like the the technologies being added to it to the light sport aircraft allow the aircraft to become a reasonable uh alternative to some of the bigger more expensive aircraft and it's it's uh, ironically uh, i wouldn't consider brilliance on their part, but the market mm-hmm. analysis showed that 80% of the travelers are under 500, 700 miles. And as a result, the light sport aircraft becomes an excellent alternative. Mm-hmm. So instead of worrying about getting into those 35, 40 major airports in the nation, the pilot with his light sport aircraft can get into the 3,000 plus airports around the nation that yep. don't have flight uh, uh, performance and category restrictions uh, to mm-hmm. getting in there in the first place. Now they can get into the more rural airports and not mm-hmm. uh, well, worry about, about the big guy. Yeah, this is about our what? airport, uh, Peter Prince Airport in Milton, a perfect example of an underused airport. It's got a great runway. It's got an instrument approach procedure. It's not an ILS, but it's, it's got an instrument approach procedure. And if worse comes to worse, you can land in Pensacola and, you know, fly later, you know, drive home. Um, so we've got a backup airport right nearby. 
you know, but it's underused. And it's only 3,000-foot runway. It probably should be 5,000-foot so we can accommodate the business jets. But here's a perfect place for light sport aircraft to be centered right here. You know, I mean, they're not that loud because the Rotax engines are quieter. You've got all kinds of advantages oh, yeah. here. You've got an entire industry that can spring up around it. We need more pilots. And in this area, how many veterans, how many military people, pilots or not, would not learn to fly, want to fly? How many, how many veteran pilots, uh, retired airline pilots, would not pick up a light sport aircraft? This could be a huge center. In fact, I'm, I'm visualizing you know, our own air show, our own convention of light sport aircraft here in, in Milton. This would be a huge boon to us. Yeah. No, it's funny you mentioned that. My A&P oh. mechanic who do manages tell. my Huh? I said, do tell. Yeah. No, go ahead. I'm curious. Oh, yeah. okay. My A&P mechanic is a former lead mechanic on the Blue Angels flight team. He uh, he retired and mm-hmm. <laughs> wanted a part-time job uh, working on uh, light sport aircraft. And he, he's just totally overqualified, but having a ball, the devil, uh, the, the devil in the detail, the attention to the detail he gives uh-huh. is superb. And yeah. as a consequence, he's got more light sport aircraft work uh, uh, in the Icon A5 than he could ever imagine uh, nationwide. He's flying around now going to um, service oh, other aircraft. Not huh. Well, here's what he should oh, do. he's very he, much specialist he, on the A5, yeah. He should set up a maintenance facility and maybe even a flight school here. We can always use more flying. Uh, but if he did maintenance he for light sport aircraft... Oh, it is your hangar. Oh, he's got a business there. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, I don't want to. I don't want to interfere with your with your business, but I'm just thinking that if we could attract, if we could get, say, for example, the VL3, which is the Czechoslovakian airplane that's uh, really being featured uh, everywhere right now. It's it's two seats. It's 200 miles an hour. It's carbon fiber. It's got a Rotex 150, 160 horsepower engine. Uh, it's it's like the, the the epitome of the new airplanes that are coming out right now. Oh, Marco, take care. We're going to be shut off. I think we might have actually shut off. So we're in a little bit of overtime. We've got an hour of overtime. We're not going to take that, obviously, but. But um, but this is this is fascinating. So I can see new business. If we could attract like a Czechoslovakian VL3 distributorship to Milton, that would be good. Or any of these light sport aircraft that are that are being built, um, or maybe even a branch of Stoddard Hamilton. Well, no, they're they're Washington. But some, if we can get one of those European manufacturers based in Milton, that'd be huge. And then oh, your absolutely. your mechanic could actually you know work right there part time or help design the place, be a consultant or something like that. Um, we got possibility. We got to use this airport, and that's that's the last thing I want to talk about. Uh, although, of course, you're welcome back anytime. This is fun. I love talking airplanes, um, almost as much <laughs> as flying them. Uh, but uh, but we've got we've got some amazing potential here, and we have so many retired pilots in the area. Why not uh, see if we oh, can yeah. develop something at Milton Airport? I'd be happy to participate with that. Um, um, that that's a beautiful airport there, and you have mm-hmm. um, you're ju- you're it's in a perfect location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long as people don't build a bunch of houses at the end of the runway. Here's <laughs> what usually happens when they complain about the noise. Yeah. Okay, so um, anything else we haven't covered? I think we've pretty much uh, really gone through this well. You did a great job of bringing this forward. Um, life sport a- aviation industry is in flux. The mm-hmm. 90-day view by the FAA is wrapped up on October 23rd. So um, they will come to their final conclusion after October 23rd on the definition you talked about between standard mm-hmm. aircraft and the light sport category. Uh, and, and it sets the stage for the future uh, for a lot of new pilots and students coming in 
that literally learn a whole new technology in flying that didn't exist for me 35 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thought was that, uh, <clears throat> you know, back when the standards were established and people were flying Piper Clubs and Rocket Champs and things like that, they were all fixed gear anyway. You didn't need complication. You didn't need air traffic control. You didn't need radios. <laughs> Sometimes they're flying without radios out there, you know, from farm to farm. Yeah, well, we're going to go for Fred's Farm today. We're going to have lunch. Then we're going to fly back in the Champ. Yep, sounds like fun. You know, those days are gone. You know, it's uh, the private well, pilot is almost. People... Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, just think of the people that Jeff Bezos put up in the recent launch and their level of astronaut experience compared to the days of uh, John Glenn, Neil Armstrong, Mm -hmm. and the rest Mm -hmm. of them that uh, were virtual scientists uh, as well as fit fit soldiers working uh, for all to anticipate all sorts of um, unforeseen circumstances up there. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, It's a whole new world of travel. Yeah, it's going to be wonderful. Well, this is actually something similar happened in the 50s when they had the DC-4s uh, for, for my non-aviation folks. Those are four-engined uh, airliners, and they were very slow. And they were using DC-3s for a while, too. So these, these were about 150 knot airplanes. They did not go very fast. They weren't pressurized. They went through the worst weather. <laughs> it was better than, than driving, you know, uh, with that air conditioning, but not much. And so uh, a lot of uh, people in those days uh, got... You know, like I say, a Cessna 310, you know, uh, a Piper, you know, uh, what was a typical Piper twin? Not the Apache that's too slow, like a twin Comanche or some of the bigger, what's the bigger Piper twin? I forgot right now. Anyway, they were flying general aviation airplanes. There was a lot of business aviation, a lot of corporate aviation, a lot of people, a lot of private aviation. People would fly rather than take an airliner because they could simply get there faster and they could go closer to where they were going. That same thing is happening again now with these 200-mile-an-hour, 200-knot airplanes uh, with very simple retractable gear that's reliable now uh, with a constant speed prop. In other words, a prop that changes the blade angle. You've only got three settings, you know, take off and landing. It's the same setting. Uh, climb and cruise. <laughs> you know, so, so it, never, it always amused me that the, the, the FAA said, well, that's a high-performance airplane. We can't teach retractables. Retractables are simple. You bring up the gear, you know, after takeoff, you lower it before landing. And if you have a problem, you use the emergency gear extension procedure. That's it. Three things to know. You know, uh, same thing with the prop. Takeoff, climb, and cruise setting. What, what's, what's hard to know about that? It's not that complicated. Airspace and rules are much more complicated. So I'm glad they're doing this and they're incorporating these planes because they're going to be training on these airplanes. So people will be training on 200-mile-an-hour airplanes pretty soon. How's that strike you? Well, I'm not surprised. It's underway. Yeah, the new okay. generation of aircraft coming out will increase speed and still be very efficient, yeah. even if they're running on electric. <laughs> hey, well, I don't think that's going to happen. Close, we, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, before you close, I'd like to put a plug in for my website, www. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Tell me about the website, the show, the podcast. Tell me everything. Let's get all your contact information. Feel free. Go for it. Thank you. www.genevalentino.com. And on there, you'll see a category about gene and passion for aviation and the folks can click on a whole bunch of videos I have there, including last year's and this year's blue angels air show. I was asked to participate as one of the um, non-military pre-show events uh, before 150,000 people on Pensacola beach, casino beach pier area uh, mm-hmm. on the July 4th blue angel air show. And you'll see me doing those touch and goes on the water uh, in front of a crowd of people as one of about seven or eight different performances before the 2 o'clock 
Blue Angel Air oh, Show. Wow. And I, my Do you understanding tell them flashing is flashing all them, those are the splashing ghosts. Splashing ghosts. Sorry. Those are the splashing ghosts. You just okay. got to catch it right because a wave coming at you might uh, give you more of a huh. splash than you wanted. Um, but that's that's where you'll find it. You'll also you can hear some of my podcasts where we where those? focus on my those, where that's at com and, mm-hmm. and there's uh, three sections there where we do a weekly radio show. A grassroots truth cast is my interviews with um, political and social leaders. Last week we did one with Roger Stone, who um, uh, uh, President Trump for, um, uh, forgave and exonerated, uh, provided immunity from from, uh, from uh, uh, incarceration, and to get him on talking about the current state of political affairs was very interesting. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I haven't caught that one yet. I got to catch that. I want to get him on my show, so we're going to be talking. I'm, I don't mind sharing it in my a lot of <laughs> So feel free to. No, that's I, I might, might tell some of yours. Yeah. Yeah, there's more more than welcome to share. Um, okay. This afternoon, we're doing something uh, nationwide with TNT Radio, Steve Hook show. Yep. We're I've done them having they're Australian. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Very and, cool. And uh, we're have um, he had. Um, Ted Nugent on last week, <laughs> and this wow. week, um, this week they've got me, and we're going to be talking about the state of affairs with our government, uh, um, all the government antics going on right now in the House and Congress uh, with the budget. Uh, McCarthy and uh, Matt Gates locally, our area congressmen. We're going to have um, uh, we're going to have a, a separate conversation uh, it, with some people who are um, involved in the COVID thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Peter McCullough, who is very much anti-mask oh, I know him. and anti-anti-vax, yeah, they're great people, and uh, so you know we'll be able to swap. I'd like to also have a portal on my website for a guy named Greg Penquis and Action oh, Radio. Cool. Yes, so, thank you. We have legislation. Uh, in fact, if you're going to do uh, some of the things you're talking about with the budget, uh, just to let folks know, again, we have a bill. It's a constitutional amendment that removes the power of Congress to borrow money. Not only that, it cancels the Fed. It removes the power of government to own securities, to print money to cover expenses, uh, and to ever have uh, a central bank, and that uh, all the control of money goes back to Congress. And so that would revolutionize and bring permanent prosperity uh, to this country and have the transfer of money, the value of money, back to people and away from uh, the Fed and from government. And so that's a huge piece of legislation that I think the states are going to have to demand it because the Congress isn't going to do it because they're too addicted to spending our money. But to the states might create a state revolution where they start saying, you know, like, like pre-ratify it or ratify by resolution. Um, so that's, uh, that would be an you interesting know, concept you're free to take on. Oh, yeah, great. Mm-hmm. We should talk about this later. Um, sure. The, the concept of um, constitutional amendments um, mm-hmm. is implausible these days to see these congressmen uh, offering up a constitutional amendment. For example, term limits or a balanced mm-hmm. budget is part of the chaos we have this week in uh, in the news but uh, if we so where do you how do you get a constitutional amendment for term limits and a balanced I don't want budget uh, I'll be honest with you I don't want one for term limits because that's you know if you have one corrupt politician for 20 years two for 10 or four for five years you still got corrupt politicians uh, you need to change the system I would I would not let anybody belong to a political party who's running for office or serving an office that's how I would do it 
Okay, it's not so, the term limits. It's, uh, it's the, it's the putting, way we elect putting them. The, uh-huh. Putting the issue aside for or sure. against, I'm concerned that it'll never come forward because of the predisposition in Congress. My concern is that we talk in the future, you and I, about maybe the Convention of States yeah, uh, see, being a mechanism. And I oppose that, too. Uh, I, I think that's dangerous because if you open up the Constitution to a convention, and I've had Mark Meckler on, I've talked to him about this. Uh, I think it's too risky that the, the leftist states and the leftist media will come in and destroy the Constitution. So my solution, and this is something you can think about, we can talk more off the air and on the air too, is that the states pass resolutions authorizing uh, a constitutional amendment that takes the power of Congress to borrow money. And if enough states do that, they can pressure the federal government, start withholding money, start withholding all kinds of things, start denying access to their offices in their state. Uh, the Western states can take their land back, which the, the federal government has no constitutional right to hold. So there's a, bunch of reason, there's a bunch of ways that we can empower the states to control the federal government, which is what the whole purpose of the Constitution in the first place. That's my problem with the Convention of States. But by resolution, you don't have to have a convention. So the states you know, pass ahead of time, saying that we're going to ratify this as soon as you guys pass it, so you better pass it because we're going to ratify it. <laughs> you know? And so it, it's, it avoids the convention of states but still gets the message to the federal government, we need this. The balanced budget amendment is fundamentally flawed. It will never work. Even if you get it, you're not going to get anything because it always has the emergency uh, escape valve of uh, a war or a pandemic or some national emergency. Well, as long as you've got that in there, there will always be a war, a pandemic, or a national emergency. See, my, my amendment doesn't have that. There is no escape clause. They stop borrowing money. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to, uh, to go off on it now because oh, I no, have a good time, man. We got say, time. But We're good. No, it's too... I, I don't want to wear you out your first visit back because, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm on adrenaline right now. I could do this all day. <laughs> I try not to, but, you know. Yeah. No, it was good. To, so you want to continue this more later? We can. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I'd appreciate okay. it. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad you got your contact information. Let me thank you again. And we have a lot to talk about um, as, as events go forward. So it's going to be very interesting. But, uh, we've got aviation. We've got politics. We've got two things that we can uh, both develop. But I want to get that airport uh, and definitely improve that and see what we can do. Thank you very much. I'd love to really... be part of it. Yeah, I'd love to be part yeah. of getting that airport. Um, we'll get a plan. We'll get a plan together. Okay. All right. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, I appreciate you having me on today. It was really great. Uh, podcast will be available in about 15 minutes, and uh, you have from the, the, the third hour on. So we got like three in hours and 12 minutes worth, or an hour and 12 minutes worth. So that was pretty good. All right, sir. We'll talk soon, very soon, in fact. And uh, I'll see you later. Best to you, Greg. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. All right. All right. Here we go. This is Gene Valentino, a friend of mine, and it was really great to have him on. I don't know why I haven't had him on earlier. It's been kind of crazy. Let me play you some things before we go. We've got our announcements. Again, this is one of those days where it was ridiculously busy, <laughs> you know, and I had people all the way through, and I have to redo the timeline. It's completely different than I planned, but that's, that's kind of how things work around here anyway. Let me get you some contact information and some announcements, and I will see you tomorrow with another busy Wednesday full of reporters uh, at uh, 7 a.m. Central Time when we do it all again. Here is your Action Radio contact and website information. The call-in line is 215-383-3832. Our show site is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Same link, live and a podcast. Please share all our shows. We have live chat at the bottom of the broadcast page available worldwide. Sign in to your free account and type away. 
We have an internet Skype line where you can call the show worldwide also. Please see the broadcast page for our Skype name. Call in during the show to get approved. Our bill writing site is writeyourlaws.com. W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S. Writeyourlaws.com. This is where anyone can write a bill and start the process of it becoming law. My paid and free subscription column is at gregpenglis.substack.com. Please consider a paid subscription of $5 per month or greater. For contributions to Action Radio, please go to givesendgo.com slash actionradio. We have over 20 Action Radio Facebook groups. Use the Facebook search window by putting in Action Radio to find our groups. My public email is greg at writeyourlaws.com. Please contact me about advertising on Action Radio and helping our mission of freedom. Thank you for listening. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. Well, that sounds good. Even better. Okay, how about your car? If you want the best service for your vehicle, please talk to James at Florida Stores Automotive, conveniently located at 6715 Caroline Street in the historic district of Milton, Florida, right between the Milton Bakery and the Blackwater Trail. Whether you need an oil change or an entire engine replaced, this is the place. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stores Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stores Automotive. I go there. You should, too. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments and choices? I don't. Which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. She is the founder of Grave Care. And now as an affiliate of Grave Care, we are proud to offer through our discount code, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws, a 10% discount. 
GraveCare saves you both time and money. They provide medical efficacy, consultation, advice, and recommendations nationwide. Their website is GraveCare.com. That's G-R-A-I-T-H Care.com. You can email them at GraveCare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Great care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. This is Greg Penglis for Strikeforce, your source for pure energy. Strikeforce is a concentrated energy drink that turns a half liter of your favorite beverage into an energy drink. You make your energy drink yourself. Action Radio is an affiliate of Strikeforce, so our listeners get a 20% discount. All you do is add our code, WYL, to the discount code window at checkout. WYL comes from our website, Write Your Laws. So, you can get your energy drink, a 20% discount, and help Action Radio change the relationship of we the people to our government. Not bad. Strikeforce is at StrikeforceEnergy.com. That's StrikeforceEnergy.com. Start your engines. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio? It is a radio show with its own citizen legislature. That's you, the listener. It is a fully interactive system of listeners, expert guests, social media, writing bills, legislator input, bill submission, lobbying, and citizen action. Action Radio is the future of talk radio using all the available technology in one completely integrated new system. You are listening to Action Radio Online with Greg Penglis. The webpage for all Action Radio shows and podcasts is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Please share our show with all your friends and family, both nationally and internationally. The guiding principle of Action Radio is this. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.